welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast, and I'm your host, Brendan O'Neill. I'm a Canadian expat living in Phuket, Thailand, and Fruiting Body is a medicinal mushroom company. Our intentions of this podcast is to connect with people living on the island and share their stories with you. Today we have a special podcast with James Donald. Um, He went to medical school at Oxford and he's specializing more on the business side of CBD and the cannabis industry, also with a a chemist background as well. So it's going to be very in-depth and we've brought on another um, specialist, specifically from the CBD industry in the USA. This is Nicholas Mattingly, no no association to Don Mattingly, the baseball player. I've already asked him that. Um, he went to Florida State University. He's come over to Thailand now and he, he's uh, given us some time to come on the podcast and discuss what he did in the CBD industry in the US. I think this is going to be absolutely terrific because we're connecting the business side with the science side and they both have backgrounds in that so it's going to flow real well i have a feeling i'm not going to be talking too much i'm going to be asking the questions you might be asking um now before we start smash the subscribe button hit like helps in the algorithm and talise hit that intro Again, subscribe. Come on, do it. It takes two seconds. Just smash it. All right. Um, James, Donald, we'll start with James. And uh, he's going to give us give us your background on where you came from, your educational background, how you kind of came to Phuket, Thailand, and what you're doing here specifically. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me in today. Um, so, yeah, my name's James, and I'm from the UK originally. Um, been in Thailand 15 years now. So my background was biochemical sciences and human biology. Uh, I didn't proceed with my medical career. I went off to choose a different path in uh, computer science. Maybe I push that one up a bit. Yeah, there we so. go. Oh, yeah, you'll hear it coming in and out. Yeah, I can hear it now. That good. Yeah, I think so, you're good there. Okay. Mm. So I left the UK many years ago. Um, came to Thailand. Lived here for 15 years, as I say, in Koh Samui, and four years in Phuket. Uh, for the last 20 years, though, I've been heavily involved in the cannabis industry. So I've been uh, giving consultancy advice on genetics and extraction technologies, formulations of products. And in the last five, 10 years, obviously, m- more importantly, on the business side of the business. So we're looking at uh, building international trade links with countries that are coming online, legalizing yep. medical cannabis. Um, uh, up till now, obviously, America's led the way. Um, but Thailand decriminalized uh, cannabis for medical use. And I've been here now for three years helping connect hedge funds and people with big investment with the correct places to go to get licensing and build a cannabis business here in Thailand because it's going to be a big future here. And that's specifically kind of for the export of cannabis back to wherever, Europe, USA? Yeah, I mean, Thailand don't have... This is their problem. They, they've got a view for, it's for local use in, initially because they don't have an overseas market, which is where I'm coming in, and mm-hmm. I'm helping to bring in purchase orders from overseas, which is what they require in order to generate a business. 
Okay, so now before, we're, it's going to be a, a more back and forth, I think, between yourself and also with Nicholas, and we can get more into the technical side. So again, just for the audience and listeners to kind of recap, um, you've, you've been doing this on the business side to help these companies. Um, and again, they could be American companies, U.S. companies, establish themselves in Thailand through certain regulations to be able to essentially bring this product back to their home country. Now, in terms of the process itself does that involve everything from the farming to the processing right into the final product absolutely thailand currently has no infrastructure for cannabis whatsoever um so the growing side of it is the start uh they haven't been growing cannabis they don't understand about the growing of medical grade cannabis and it leads into many many misunderstandings they have regarding the compliance issues of trading in cannabis globally. What mm -hmm. sort of facility do you need to have? Because uh, it's not just about the growing, it's obviously about the the building in which you're going to process the product. Yeah. Depends where you're sending it in the world. So they, they're getting their head now slowly around all these different areas, but they have nothing. There's, there's no real growing yet. There's no real extraction. There's no real testing. There's no real product formulation. And there's absolutely no export at the moment to any countries. And so... Basically, with that in mind, and things are changing every day. So, yeah. to be honest, this podcast in about a year, we might have it might be useless information. We don't know. Oh no, <laughs> it, this is this is all situation just right now. It, yeah, it of what's going in the next few months. Yeah, as change. regulation yeah. And, and licensing uh, sure. requirements change, uh, uh, on the business side, uh, it's still uncertain at the moment. Well, I mean, last week, for example, I had meetings with the FDA and Ministry of Agriculture and some other big government bodies. Uh, regarding export of cannabis flower, the efflorescence, THC part, because I've got big orders and contracts in Israel. And all they can say to me is, you have to build us an EU GMP facility, yeah. pr prove you can do it, let's see the, the model, and then they'll, they're going to follow, because they don't know what they're doing, sadly, mm -hmm. which is why we're here, it's helping. And there, and there can be risk associated with that if things don't take off. Well, yeah, well. you've got to build your facility extraction you've got to put millions and millions of dollars in and then you get your license and hoping that regulation doesn't change there either yeah okay so th this is more the mm. business side and i think we just touched on it lightly now we're going to jump over to nicholas mattingly he uh, again nicholas he's here on vacation so he's you've been here about five months now mm -hmm. um just explain to us your background and how you got into not only the CBD industry and what you were doing with them specifically, also why you came to Phuket and kind of what, what your plans are for here. Cool. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, again, thanks a lot, both guys, for coming. I, it's quite long-winded, so I had a lot of information to, to throw out there. But, um, yeah, uh, go away and run with that. Um, so to start, I worked a lot with CBD, but that was... I was focused predominantly on the THC market in the United States, although there is a very large CBD market as well. Um, but I also started off um, choosing not to pursue a medical path uh, in, in undergrad, uh, went pretty quickly into the lab analytical laboratory industry, analytical chemistry, and that's predominantly what I did in the U.S. cannabis industry. Uh, I worked in a, a series of analytical chemistry laboratories, and that's taking the products that uh, he's producing – from the plant matter all the way through to a final product, be that a, a cookie or an extract. And we're analyzing and producing a quantified results on what the constituent parts of those products are, be them cannabinoids, things you want in there. 
or pesticides, things you might not. And want. that's predominantly just for the THC industry. Were you doing and any work on the CBD side as well? Um, I mean, they go together. If you're working in the THC, if you're working in medical THC, you're going to be working in medical CBD. Um, but there is a secondary CBD uh, gray market in the United States that exists outside of medical regulation. Um, so when you're in an analytical lab, you're, you're testing medical licensed medical products, but also you're serving this CBD, this growing CBD market, um, which is kind of fits under nutraceutical uh, at the moment. And you were, we, were, we had a talk on the phone about this. Um, specifically, you're working for these like analytical labs. It's, uh, we can say the name? Yeah. yeah. E EVO? EVO and, um, Again, I'm on the mushroom side. So these companies, they're not as well known to me. This is a famous company in the industry. Yeah. And you were also saying that it's one of the only analytical labs that can do the COA for ISO 17025. Is that correct? It was the, so the lab I worked at after I left Colorado was the first, we certified the first ISO 17025 in the state of Florida for marijuana. Um, ISO, International Standards Organization. Um, so that was in the state of Florida. There were pre-existing ISO laboratories in the United States before that time. Um, I'm not sure if they covered all the analyses we did, uh, but it's a new phenomenon to see ISO certified weed labs for sure. Yeah, and this is also, it can be applied to many industries. It's it's predominantly, it is focusing on the COAs, and um, we obviously understand that, but why don't you explain that a little bit? What is a COA, cert Certificate of Analysis, and specifically what happens in that process? Okay, so a COA is going to look like, a, so if, if I were to have a CBD company and, and send it to an ethical lab, what I'm hoping to get at the end is a COA, Certificate of Analysis, that proves that the product I want to sell is both as advertised medically and safe to consume. So what that consists of in an analytical lab is uh, using various instruments to study the different parts of whatever it is you're testing. That could be a steak, that could be marijuana, that could be any food product. Um, so the COA is going to tell you pesticide content, uh, the cannabinoid content, um, E. coli. If you've extracted the marijuana into metals. an oil, uh, it's going to tell you the solvent, residual solvents that may be left in that product. Um, it's, it's a report. It's a report of uh, kind of the stress test that we've put your product under. And maybe this is where your two paths start to cross in the sense that you clearly are aware of the requirements of the COA for the, the products that you will be testing, not just in terms of your pesticides, heavy metals, but also the potency Specifically now for your business, have you gone down this path and, and you know what you're looking for and, and uh, what things would kind of stick out like a, a red flag and whatnot? Well, it, it's not so much what sticks out as in, in a red flag. We have a, a, a standard operating procedure. So when a flower comes into the unit, really the first thing that happens is it has a heavy metal, pesticide and a cannabinoid profile done. I'm not interested in the terpenes at this precise moment because we've probably got those catalogued for that strain. Um, so what that means is before it hits any machinery, we're going to check if it's contaminated because we might ditch it straight away. So after that first check, a COA is produced and that has to be logged into a system, uh, a management system, a laboratory management system so that we can store it. It then goes on and is chopped up and the first extraction performed. After that, it's back to the lab for another yeah. COA. That's on the cannabinoid because I want to see how we're progressing through the extract, then we'll distill it, another COA. Yeah. We might make isolate, 
and then end products, each another COA. Along the way. Then we will get a third-party lab to verify our results, and that's where the ISO comes in. Because if I send my results to a, a, some Joe Bloggs lab that doesn't have any standardization and has been checked by a third-party certifying body, how do I know that the product is as reported in my COA? So it's very important. International trade relies heavily upon these COAs. It's, it, it, they're critical to the whole mission of selling cannabis. Yeah, and, and specifically for that, you know, you can do your own COA testing. Let's say once you're farm, farming and the product set up and the processing is set up in Thailand, who would be your third party for the COAs? Do you need to go back to the U.S.? Well, no, we, we, we can't because technically it, you've just seen how many times I need to do a COA and it's not really easy. To, to, to do an export of a sample for a test would require all the paperwork as if you were doing a full export. So it's not really practical to be sending THC narcotic samples. Mm. CBD samples, maybe. So we're going to be building a third-party testing lab here in Thailand that will be accredited internationally by a third-party body. Yeah, sure. Uh, for that exact reason. There's mm. one at the moment in Bangkok, but bless them, they've, they, they can do a turnaround time of four or five weeks on a sample. Oof. And what are you... What, oh, I know. What, are, what would you <laughs> expect? Like, what's a, t uh, a realistic turn turnaround time? I mean, for a country that's just starting, um, e early in the American industry, you could see, I mean, not that maybe over two weeks. Um, so it's understandable. But we would, we would be pushed for a full... And our analysis was full compared to most labs. And it was 48 hours. We would put out seven, eight analyses. Yeah, most, most labs offer different SLAs, don't they? Right. You can pay, you can you pay know, extra. A, pre a premium service. You can pay like oh, okay. in 12 hours or... Yeah, just like shipping. They've worked or, the yeah, marketing yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. They've nailed it now on the marketing. And it used to be standard. I mean, when I was in Colorado, it was more lax at that time. Um, it didn't feel like it, but it was still four days. But once I had moved to, to the larger lab in Florida, the industry had, had changed so much. And it's just really people expect next day next two days now four or five weeks would not be that would it, be money back this the, the job that you were doing in in colorado um was it the same job uh, essentially like in terms of your role in florida or did it change um so in colorado that was kind of me cutting my teeth in that was how i broke into the 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 laboratory this particular laboratory within the industry analytical um we spoke about this before there's there's no formalized academic training programs for the particularities of marijuana, um, chemistry applied to marijuana. Obviously, you study standard analytical chemistry. Um, but if you want to know details about how to extract particular products and you, don't want, and you want to know um, how to harvest, for example, when you, the first thing you do when you take a marijuana product is you're going you're gonna to sample that product. So you enter a grow house with a 1,000 plants and you're, you're testing this for potency, what, where do you take the marijuana? Do you take it from the top, close to the light? Do you take it from under? Or do you try to get a good general picture of the whole body of plants? So you're homogenized. It's these kind of small details that you get working in an industry that has serviced grows. Colorado, that's, that's where I started. I guess you could say learn the particularities of the marijuana industry, having the chemistry knowledge already. Um, you're navigating a set of regulations that's been set up and has been running for years. Um, and Florida was uh, taking those lessons learned, applying them to a brand new market, um, defining the market due to how early we were, 
and and adapting what we had done to a, a brand new set of regulations that were far more strict in Florida than Colorado too. Um, but that all culminated in the ISO push. You know, you you build a laboratory, and there's a million ways to build a laboratory that does the same thing. Um, but the ISO test um, determines whether your system of accumulating and presenting data is robust mm-hmm. and is strong and can stand up to variation and can be replicated, your me- that your methods can be replicated and that they're valid. And is could we apply this to, to, to uh, also with James and him setting up, essentially you're going to have to set up a, a, a type of testing facility here. And those barriers, there's probably a lot of, and I could be wrong, there could be a lot of unforeseen barriers that he will have to cross that maybe he needs to prepare himself. It's a bit of a long-winded question, but it's more around the, the idea that it's just not so simple to just set up any COA, ISO testing facility lab that's following the proper SOP. Um, so the question to you is what type of risks or barriers, like super higher level, do you see him facing? What type of risk in setting up a third party not, lab? I, I don't want to sorry, not risk, but just time-consuming, this is going to be difficult, This is if you're setting up this, maybe these are some of the standard operating procedures that you might struggle with um, because you've been through it and, and you've seen it firsthand. I think if you have a strong team of curious uh, scientists that are motivated to tackle any problem that comes in the door, let's say you have a novel product that is chemically is not similar to what you're used to add extracting, what that means is you have to investigate and you have to produce a valid method. So if you have people that can do science well, you're going you're gonna to achieve, you're going to do the science well. Um, I think for us what threw the wrench in often was just the, the, the early evolution of a market. Like you said earlier that you know, this podcast in a year or in six months might not even be relevant. This information, yeah, right, that we're discussing. Yes. Right, because the government is itself learning about marijuana and then itself legislating as it as the market grows and as new it's like uh, we say you're you're sailing and building the boat while it sails right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. definitely doing that yeah <laughs> and, and on your side so if i'm if i'm looking from the outside and just as more or less just you know assuming are you going to just apply like sops from us iso certified labs and kind of bringing those standard operating procedures over to the lab here is that is that kind of the 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 strategy well well yeah mostly yes you don't re- need to recreate st- you don't need to reinvent the wheel no no most of the sops are machine specific so uh depends what equipment you buy in but ultimately we'll bring scientists that will either use sops provided directly by the manufacturer normally so i mean agilent uh shimatsu when and, you and we're talking about just so people understand Machine manufacturers. Yeah, we're talking yes. about the companies that make the hardware that we actually put in the lab to do the analyses. Now, m- most of these, in the old days, uh, you used to have a, a mass spectrometer and you were on your own playing with test tubes. And there weren't any SOPs defined by manufacturers to follow. Now, manufacturers make very specific SOPs to follow for a range of different products for you specifically with their machines. So... They've, they've, do you know, the Shimadzu have made it so easy now. You're not going to be a third-party accredited lab with this, with this bit of kit. 
but you want to know how much THC is in your product, their bit of kit now that you can buy for about $50,000, you just follow this very simple little process, which involves adding a few different reagents, a bit of a centrifuge, plop it in the machine and hit go. That's about as complex as it gets now. The and, Shimazu and Cannabis Analyzer. Yeah. I mean, Very it, easy, good machine. Is it, uh, is the, it Japanese? The, it is. They're yeah. terpene and heavy metal machinery. Again, now you're getting into quite in-depth science before. Yeah. This is, again, almost push-button equipment. Um, it, it's great. It's you know very expensive to buy, but they've simplified it. But this, So this is great for in-house testing. I mean, it would be good for a qualified lab too, but you can get up and running in-house now very easy, whereas before, you know, it's not cheap, a whole suite of tests, is it? No. You're looking, what, $1,000, yeah. $1,500 for a, a sample test? Not just cannabis, the THC or CBD. Mm. If you wanted to know about mycotoxin, you know, infection, um, E. coli, heavy metals, pesticides, a whole suite you need to get done. Yeah, you'd be looking at $1,000 ju just to get that done. Now you can buy the machinery a reasonable price, do it in-house, and then right at the end, go for the third-party test just before you sell your product, which is all you now require. Were you working with those machines as well? Uh, the EVO, that I, the last lab that I worked at was all Shimadzu. That was Shimadzu's flag flagship lab at the time. I'm not sure if it is anymore, but that's where really they, um, all that equipment that James discussed um, was put into one, uh, under one roof and as a cohesive whole uh, ran. Mm -hmm. And um, it worked really well. When I, um, like James was saying, you have standardization to the point now where it's push button. And if anything goes wrong, you can call up an agent and they'll over the phone, they'll diagnose it. Mm -hmm. um, but in the beginning of the industry, for example, RM3 in Colorado where I worked, that was started by a Wall Street guy, I think. Uh, and he, he left Wall Street. He was self-taught, but... Um, these machines, when you analyze the marijuana, they have a reference, essentially a reference number. So you'll, you teach the machine what a 20% marijuana looks like, to put it simply. You teach it a, a range of values. Mm -hmm. So the, when, you, when, you put, when you put your sample from the field in the machine, it can kind of cross-reference the value that it's seeing with what it already knows. Um, but you need to have those accurate standards. You need to have a vial that says this is 20%. Uh, this is yeah, what 20% looks like. Calibration standards. Right, calibration standards. Yeah. It's how you calibrate the machine. Yeah, every morning you have to calibrate. Right, every, yeah, every morning you're calibrating. Um, and those calibration standards, they were not on the market when Colorado came online. Mm. So he, made, he was making his own calibration standards in his basement as a self-taught chemist. That's an extremely complicated. Yeah, how, how would you get that initial 20% vial, let's say, because you got a benchmark off something, right? You go to a company like Sigma Aldrich and you pay about $300 for a little tiny vial of a known standard. And because of their ISO certifications and their business processes that they're accredited to as a supplier of lab equipment, you can be rest assured that what they've just given you is what's on the, what's on the labels, what's in the bottle. And that is really important. There's only a few major companies you can rely on for calibration standards because that actually is underpinning the key of the entire result that the machine's going to give you. Because yep. if, like you said, if you've got wrong calibration standards, the machine will never give you the right result. You'll always be reading the wrong result. So, yeah, if it wasn't 20 milligrams per mil of THC, yep. you got it, it was all, it, 
your end results are going to be wrong. And Nicholas, did you have to use this type of technique or strategy to calibrate your machines as well? Like yeah. reaching out to uh, almost third, what would you call them? Third party suppliers of the product, a supplier of the product itself for you to bring it in house to calibrate your machines. The, sta the calibration standards? Yes. So anytime you're going to use these machines, spectrometers and, and gas, chrom chrom gas yeah, chromatographs, anytime you're going to use these pieces of equipment to study anything, even if you're studying a vitamin or uh, Advil or an apple, you're, you need to calibrate this equipment to that. Got it. Um, so like Sigma Aldrich, as was mentioned, this is a, this is a, a lab supply company, chemical company, um, and they are extracting or producing pure THC to an extremely accurate uh, percentage. Um, and we can, based on the assumption that that lab being ISO certified and reputable, we use that as a standard as to calibrate the machine. Mm. Um, so anytime you're using a, a piece of analytical equipment, you have to have a calibration that you're referring that you're referring to. So anyone looking to start a CBD company, let's say specifically in the U.S., um, a couple things that you you would want to be looking for, not just in a supplier. Let's say let's say if you were to buy um. Uh, we call it like a white label supplier that's supplying, you know, many different people that you can throw your own packaging on it. When you're reaching out to them, these types of questions, would you consider them high priority? Who are you dealing with? Where are you doing testing? What's your benchmarking? Where are you getting, where is that product getting benchmarked from? In terms of the testing, what machines are they using? Would there be like a standardized like list of 20 questions? If again, if you want to sell your own product in the U.S. as a, a white label. Um, you want to vet your lab, you know, there, um, I personally enjoyed it when I had clients that had a scientific understanding and were, th they would hold us accountable. Um, I, I enjoyed it when we would produce a COA and then the company would come back and ask about our methods. How did we produce the COA? Um, but if you're in the position of starting a company, you need, you want to, you want hundred percent be sure who is, who's testing your product. You know, if, if they do a bad job testing, you may have a great product that gets a stamp of disapproval from a lab that's not doing good science. And mm -hmm. Well, you don't know these days, though, because, I mean, you've seen recently some of the stuff going on in America. You've got accredited labs, government accredited, two labs. Apparently, on paper, they look like they can do the job. And they're both repeatedly coming up with wildly different results on the same sample. Yeah. Why is that? Well, this is a very, very good point. And it's a worrying point that has been looked into scientifically because the FDA in America is getting really concerned that at the moment there's now non-standardization for various reasons, with the, even within standardized ISO certified labs. And it comes down to all sorts of preparational techniques, non differences in, in SOPs and equipment. And I think, well, I mean, what have you, have you heard about this? What do you think is the major reason for these differences? The differences in equipment that's used or the actual process? Specifically, um, if you have two ISO certified labs producing different results? Yeah, that are using, one's got a Shimadzu, one's using an Agilent. They're using the same calibration standard from, from a company. Yep. One's coming up with a different MG result to another, another report for the same flower. Yeah, I mean, this most, is common. most laboratories in the US still for weed are not gonna be ISO certified for every analysis. Um, and even the ones that are, um, 
you know, I can't, I can't speak to the details of how that would get corrupted, but they're, they're really, it's, if all of your analytical equipment is being traced back to the same place, it should not, you should not see variants unless you see errors in preparation, um, which is, I would assume that there is errors in preparation. Well, I think the other thing we see is the difference in quality of equipment used. You know, for, so for example, I can go and buy a gas chromatograph from a company brand new in America for about $20,000, dollars that will be absolutely adequate to give me some information on my cannabis levels in my CBD levels in my flower, for example, in a field. It's not, it's got about five, five times less the resolution of the Shimatsu equipment. So we've got resolution in issues. In terms of a- res- accuracy? A- I'm yeah, testing. A- a- actually accuracy. I mean, th- these things, are ma- at the end of the day, when you, you either inject a liquid or, or a sample into a machine and it gets turned into a gas or a liquid, depending on the bit of equipment, shot through this c- system, comes out of a hole, basically, where an, where an analyzer reads it, either a mass spectrometer or an infrared system, that looks at the amount of individual atoms of the THC that are coming out. And the sensitivity of that equipment is different for different companies. And so would they not, won't these uh, accredited labs, so one of the labs I was working with for medicinal mushrooms in uh, USA is uh, NSF. Uh, again, it's an ISO, accredi- uh, ISO 17025 accredited lab, but let's say specifically for uh, cannab- cannabis testing and, and trying to understand, again, um, focusing on the COA and, and the potency of the product itself. Wouldn't they have to make it a standard of the machines need to be the same at every single accredited lab? Is that the only way to keep things consistent? It, it's not worded really like that, the ISO standards. The ISO standards around maintaining accuracy through a repeatable process, which can be self-defined by the lab itself. So there is no one body that says this is the process you're going to follow. So to your point, it should be, you're speaking earlier, you have different equipment. If you've, if you've got one lab that's running one brand of equipment and you've got another lab that's running a different brand that's older, technically, if they both passed ISO, those methods are validated and they should produce the same results. So there's something going on there that I think personally comes down to the, the, the age of the market and the lack of accountability. Uh, it's a state-to-state thing in the United States. There's no federal regulation on analytical testing. Mm-hmm. The FDA generally will, will provide you SAPs for various agricultural products, um, and that doesn't exist either. There's no central body. No, they leave it up to you. So, I, again, in the past, THC has been tested. When you're looking at an, uh, THC in a product that's supposed to be non-detectable, for example, here's another little caveat that happened. A lot of testing equipment wasn't that sensitive. So they were giving ND, non-detectable, THC readings to a person's product, which meant that they were then bottling it up, marketing it as THC-free. So it could be used by an airline pilot, someone, blah, blah, blah. Actually wasn't THC-free at all. It was just that the equipment they used ran out of capacity and ability to detect minute quantities it, it just wasn't sensitive And enough. once you learn that, yeah. you can start deliberately using that fact to benefit your CBD customers. Like you, if, you, if you've got a CBD customer that wants to produce a product that has no THC, but you know your piece of equipment is not strong enough to detect THC. Uh-huh. So this is where your question, you need to choose your vendor carefully. So I would be looking for someone that has a very good quality bit of kit that can do a very high resolution on the THC 
especially if you were doing an ND. If you just needed to check you were under 0.3%, probably all right, but not when you're making the non-detectable. So there's been heaps of products made and released on the market with THC in. The and, and that's because the accredited lab doesn't have the 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 proper uh, yeah. accurate testing equipment. Yeah. And in, in on your mm-hmm. side, and maybe your mic, you just got to lean sometimes when you tilt it. That's okay. It. Back back to that. So how many different, like if you were to think off the top of your head, how many different accredited ISOs, 17-0 ISO labs, um, are there in the U.S.? How many mm-hmm. ISO? Uh, ISO 17025 labs for this type of testing. For marijuana. For marijuana are actually in the U.S. that you could choose from. Thousands. Thousands. I mean, thousands of ISO (laughs) facilities. But are they accredited? But for specifically marijuana, there's not thousands yet. Hundreds, probably. Maybe hundreds. So, and that's where this issue is. Within those hundreds, there's no consistency. Because maybe a couple of, some of those, they're using um, uh, machines that are not as accurate as others. And that's where you use it. And again, I'm just recapping. That's where it can be an advantage if I am getting into the CBD industry. And I want to say... Yeah, my product is zero THC, but I know that this accredited lab testing equipment is not as accurate as that one. Therefore, I'm going to go to that one. Yeah. Is that the point you're trying to make? Absolutely. It, it, completely. Yeah, not everyone has the same equipment. And you can find out from asking what the piece of kit is, the resolution of it, the quality of it. I mean, a Shimans, some, of, some of the higher end uh, um, mass spectrometer equipment are millions, three, four million dollars just for the detector bit that sits on the end because of the, sh- the incredible capability of it for to, to, to take minute amounts of a product, super minute, that you, you won't, even the Shimatsu kit, it's $50,000. It's only got a specific, you can get more expensive Shimatsu equipment than that, but just the entry level that we were saying, the cannabis analyzer, even that is great for in-house use. You, you wouldn't want to use that in a lab because it just doesn't have the resolution you're looking at millions of dollars for something super accurate to, to sit on the end of the analyzer to measure the, the outflow of what it is. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And I think that goes back to, to Nicholas's point where you're saying that there is no federal governing body for these accredited labs, meaning it can fluctuate state to state. So yep. if you know that in, let's say, uh, Florida, their equipment is not as accurate as Colorado, and I'm a CBD company that wants to say zero THC, and I'm aware of that information, you're going to take your product to Florida to be able to be accredited as zero THC. Is that kind of the point we're going over? If you're a TH, so for analytical testing for almost everything within the TH, regulated THC markets, those are going to stay within the state. We never got shipments of medical THC products from other states. It was, it's illegal to ship. Federally illegal to ship across the state. Right. So this is a huge issue in the entire CBD and marijuana industry in the U.S. There's no consistency on products. And you're siloed. So you have all these states are, and science really relies on um, there being an abundance of as much information as you can. So you have, and you have labs protecting their IP and protecting, if you're in a, a state where every lab except you is failing edibles, testing but you're not what incentive is there for you to share that edibles methodology with, with other labs um you wouldn't need to in a federally regulated environment with the fda regulating it um, everybody would likely be using the same exact processes and that cannot exist until every state kind of came on the same page because you have different federal or state legislation in florida versus texas versus california yep. and nobody's working together 
Now, so that's not an issue on the business side. It's the governing bodies themselves on legalizing or, or you know, legalizing that uh, different levels of potency in their states, but there's no consistent federally. Uh, the question is then, how the hell are they going to fix this? When is this going to be federal, federally consistent? When, when they federally decriminalize it. And is that happening? Yes. When, and are, are you guys, maybe you guys can chat about that because you're more I, I involved. Think, when do you think that's going to happen? Or is that a lot of it hearsay? I, th I agree that I think it will be happen when I can't. I, can't I don't think it can be hearsay now. It's got so right. much momentum now in, in, in so many states. I, I just can't really get my head around that the feds will not want to take advantage of this finally now. Um, there's just been too many political reasons why they haven't really finally got involved. But they've been happy to let how many states now get involved? I mean, uh, uh, the number... Recreationally, uh, almost a dozen now. And, and the number that medically, where you, you can just walk in $50 and walk most. out with a bag of weed, is nearly every state now. Yeah, but two of the more uh, highly authoritative states, especially in terms of electoral voting powder, power, uh, Florida and Texas, they're definitely holding back at the moment, correct? Well, f no, Florida's now... Medical. 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 Yes. They're, I don't think they're going to do this. Too many old people there enjoying their retirement that don't want to see kids walking around with doobies on the street. So I don't think they're going to do recreational. But medical, yeah. Do you see any other issues why Florida wouldn't do it? Wouldn't do recreational? Yeah. Um, it's in the South. Um, Conservative. Yeah, I think it's not as straightforward. Colorado is known to be uh, a purple state. Like th they would say, you have a lot of libertarian leading red and a lot of democrat it makes total sense that colorado legalized recreational first for florida every year that i was working there it was oh it's going to happen this next legislative session oh it's going to happen I this waited for years you know right. I, could, I couldn't believe the day they finally did it i thought wow at, at last the medical it, the know. last state has fallen but the medical <laughs> uh, like a lot of states in florida i mean to get a medical card in florida is it's a going to a doctor's appointment you don't you just say the right things you get the card and yeah you just say it, well, it, i can't it, sleep it, at night it's right. an excuse yeah. to buy to buy marijuana if you want to use it recreationally let's make no bones about that same as it was in Cal california paying 40 dollars being able to sit in front of a doctor behind a bulletproof screen so he can't even touch you and him just hold up a sheet tick some of these that's wrong with you and you too. Yeah. I've got back. And I think it's been headache. like that for, let's be honest, 12 years. Cause I remember hearing this in California yep. when I was traveling through it in 2008, yeah. Yeah, everyone had medical cards, even it was more uh, liberal and advanced than being in Toronto, Canada. Yeah. I mean, we still had to buy it on the streets there. Um, so I, 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 I hope, I think this is a bit long winded, but it's very important because from a business side, if I'm starting up a CBD company in the U.S., let's say, wouldn't it make most sense for me to choose a, uh, an accredited lab that has the most accurate technology for testing my product? Because let's say five, six years or 10 years down the road, whatever, when there is a standardization. Now, if I was using a lab that equipment was not as accurate and then they make this uh, uh, protocol or standardization of it has to be this exactly, right? Well, now these, th th these labs, they're going to force me to go there. And if I went to this lab that did not have proper uh, accurate testing equipment, I need to change my entire product, don't I? Because I don't match it anymore. Well, so isn't the, the, my, my point is there's a lot of risk 
also by not using the right equipment with an accredited lab because in the future your entire product might change and won't that affect everything from the potency to the flavonoids and and the product itself no make no laboratory testing and the way in which it's done can have reprisals later on in many other areas not just in the cannabis industry i mean recently um in, the, in New York, there was a massive, massive problem with uh, their testing process, right? So what they did is every time they got a sample from the police to, from a prospective drugs criminal, they tested it, and then they ran, basically, they ran an, a, a computer algorithm on the result. Um, and they, were, they weren't actually analyzing in the way that we traditionally do, you know? We, it, it's a one sample through. We don't run any computer software on it to try and analyze the percentage chance that it's wrong or right. And they were locking people up based on what a computer was telling them. Not um, an actual chemi- not chemistry test. They were doing a chemistry test, but what they were doing is then running all the results for that. If it wasn't completely clear, for example, on some aspects, they would run it through this probability calculator, which looks at... Based all on s- past Based on past, yeah, all sorts of other things. And it was, it was completely... They made it in-house... They, the DEA created it for this lab, mm. bespoke, completely flawed. It had locked thousands of people up in prison. Um, but so they created the standard itself, which... Yeah, yeah. so again, it, it, it's again, every lab creates, like he said, develops their own standard operating procedure, guards it carefully. And, I mean, recently in California, eight labs in the same area all, all, were, all had to uh, give up some samples and were tested by the government. Every one, of th- every one of their samples that they tested came back with a different result. All the eight labs. When the government tested it, according to the, their official standard protocol, it was close to some of the others, but e- the point was that all eight labs gave a different result. And you'd expect a small difference. But, but not wild. Right. Like you're talking a 10, 20% difference. Yeah, like quite significant. I mean, I- I- enough if you were on a non-detectable product, it would just... It's no good. It's mm-hmm. in, in medicine... We have to make. We have to follow pharmacopoeia. We have to be within four percent normally of of a given value. So if I say there's five hundred milligrams in this bottle, there has to be that plus or minus four percent, or it's not a pharmaceutical product. So you've in, got informally the CBD industry runs on a twenty five percent variance. Well, yeah, yeah and here yeah. is the, when we said this is another debate, isn't it, as to whether CBD is a if it's it's a medical product, right? As far as I'm concerned. We are saying that there are medical benefits to it. We're researching that clinically in hospitals. So therefore, we will formulate medical preparations eventually in the correct formulations to help specific diseases. Therefore, it's a medicine. So it has to be following how we behave with medicines now, which is 4%, not 25%. The TGA in Australia have acknowledged this already. And they've said that, no, they've, they've cut the dosage maximum you can put into a single vial single dose of cbd and it has to be within specific tolerances every time otherwise it's not on the list so yeah this is where we're going i think with the industry generally we've been lucky up till now it's been an absolute free-for-all yeah and yeah and you are lucky if you can use that to your advantage you can be very lucky how can you be consistent to have your product always with this four percent variance what does that uh, i would recommend in this environment if you're just releasing a new product to to test your first few products in your portfolio with a, a multiple labs and really ask them after about their products. Speak to the lead chemist 
But th- um, this four percent affects your. It, it, it's it's so significant, really, that you look at a pharmaceutical business and the way that they prepare a drug, the standardization and the repeatability, and then you transform that to our industry. What it means is caps on some of the stuff we've been talking about. How you grow the plant. If you grow big plants and you don't grow them in a very specific way of pruning every time, you get variation in the plant. You get variation in the plant, you're going to end up with variation in your end product. Now, if I'm making a full-spectrum product, for example, I want to be able to take out of the plant what sits in it every time and not mess around with it and change it. And I want it to be the same every time I harvest a plant. Now, that's really, really hard to do. And so what you have with this 4%, so now what you've got happening a lot, let's say you've got, um, because of the variation in plant strength, when you go to extraction, you'll get a variable strength extract, which now means, so now you're making tincture pots that have to have, say, 1,500 milligrams of CBD per 30, in 30 milliliters of carrier oil. Well, if this month's harvest and oil is different to the last month's, I've got to start tinkering to get concentrations yeah. right. So now... now to manage, now yeah, yeah. Yeah, now we're bastardizing the mix. So then... then with the answer to that, I, and this is why it works in the pharmaceutical industry because it's synthetic, right? So, for example, synthetic op- uh, opiates, like you get your volumes, your, yeah, yeah. and this is st- essentially still derived from plants, from poppy plants. But well, they even have pl- uh, facilities that utilize plants that are standardized, like you said, too. You can bring growing a plant up to a level of standardization. Yes, we can. We can get it almost nailed, and we keep... We keep them in, we keep sort of genetics. But this does not currently exist. It's something that's being developed in the industry. Yeah. This standardization yes, it of does. plant growing. Oh, yes, it does. I mean, we're in, in such an advanced way now that we, we accept the stability of the genetics is so important and key to, the, to every other stage that there are massive companies that have poured in hundreds of millions of dollars into genetic research and maintaining and making stable yep. genetics. Yeah, it's a huge business. So, yeah, if you look at, for example, a company like Afria, multiple billion-dollar market cap, yep. they probably are there. But there's thousands of licenses across the western half of the United States that almost are definitely not there. No. And I think that there will be a huge sea change when we see the federal government roll into action. And there, um, There's going to be a lot of people that can't keep up with the regulation, it's going to totally change your life as a business owner. Your product will fail, won't it? Well, when wouldn't you just be able then, then kind of shy away from your own testing in-house and just rely on third parties? No, I think it's, it's, it's too expensive to just continually rely on that. So and then that's the competitive advantage of these big players because they can control all their testing in-house, but they're doing that because they have the cash flow. Well, you don't have to have big money to get a fairly accurate test in-house now. The most... Most cannabis companies that are, you know, even a small to medium size have got some form of testing. I mean, you can go and buy an orange photonics box, which is a, a, a liquid chromatography unit, which for about $10,000, that little bit of kit could be operated by someone in the field after 10 minutes of instruction and will give you pretty Fair, much... Fairly accurate. Yeah, you're 99% the way there. Yeah, so um, no, most companies do in-house testing. It's just the final third-party authority that you need. Understood. Mm. And on, so, on Nicholas, on your side, when you were doing testing in Colorado, 
Um, did you notice now, were you dealing with like these white labels? Were you dealing with like big formulation companies, you know, kind of like a supplement company essentially, or were you dealing with the farmers directly? Um, in Colorado, it was a lot of farmers directly. Um, in, in Florida, we had a lot of, we had a lot of gray market. We had a much larger CBD industry in Florida because in Colorado, the lab we were working at, if you were testing um, medical marijuana with a barcode registered in their government system as a marijuana plant, you weren't allowed to test uh, CBD products that were not registered as medical CBD. So in Colorado, you have medical CBD and you have CBD that you can buy from a smoke shop. Okay. Right? Now, what's the difference between the two? Um, one has been recognized as existing by the government and one has not. That's, that's they, really it. Are they, they're still using the same terminology? Is that for marketing purposes or what is the reason? It's just the way you structure your, your business. In Colorado, you could, you could start a an, uh, CBD uh, business where you sell CBD tinctures, but it's not going to be prescribed by a medical doctor. Or you could, you could grow a hemp plant and produce medical CBD, which is sold in dispensaries alongside THC. So you have to concurrent markets. So we, we were only, in Colorado, we were testing official THC dispensary grow house extraction facility products. In Florida, it was more, more Wild West. So you had a very early marijuana market, um, but then you also had this pre-existing market of unregulated CBD companies, which were, like you said before, they were CBD and a little THC companies. Well, yeah, I think that goes off James's point, and that's kind of why I brought this back to the Colorado side and understanding the consistency within uh, testing the product itself. Were there certain farmers that you worked with where time after time after time there was that consistency in the testing? And let's say you had 10 farmers. How many of them were actually consistent? Okay, that's a good question. Like, um, I, I would say... Um, Overall, the larger you were, the more consistent your grow got. I mean, roughly. Okay. Or the more money you had to put into it. We had a lot of small grows, even in our immediate facility, that were constantly having trouble and failing. Um, so what, like, on a, as a percentage, if I have 10 companies, what, two of them are able to stay fairly consistent just by sheer size? Um, maybe. I couldn't give you a real accurate number okay. on that. Um, I... Mostly people are keeping within uh, 10% of their last season. In Colorado, they have a regulation where if you produce accurate numbers within a certain percentage range on Blue Dream strain marijuana, for you grow Blue Dream three years in a row, if the same lab tests that and it passes three years in a row, the fourth year you don't need to do an analytical test on that. And we had plenty of customers that passed that. Okay, that's always been a... a as We'll come back to James because I want we'll, I want to dive into how he plans to be consistent with your farming and your regulation in Thailand. But we're going to go down that and it's going to go a bit, I think. Before we jump into that, that was one concern I had because we're getting into medicinal mushrooms and we have to produce COAs. And that's fine. I can produce my COAs of where I'm uh, farming. And again, at the end of the day, that's bullshit. It can, anyone, I can make a fake COA, no problem. Um, then we have to do the COA again in the U.S., but it's only on the very first batch of, so I could buy a batch today, send it, get my COA here, send it to the US, get my COA, great. And now I can produce 20 batches for the next 20 years and I never need another COA from the US. How does that make any sense? Well, it won't to your customers and 
your customers are probably savvy, like customers in the cannabis market now. And they expect to see a COA for every bottle that they buy. Everything that any anything that they buy with that with that active ingredient should should have a COA, and that would be attached to one. the lot number or the batch number yes. on the bottle. Yeah, exactly. Should be accessible. You, you, we have what's called seed to sale software, which means that we capture every piece of information from the, from the seed to every chemical that was ever applied, touched, even the man the soil that it was grown in. Where did it come from? What lot number was that? fertilizers, mix lot numbers. We keep everything. All that data is in a software that your customers have public as- access they, they, to. Well, they'll have access to certain aspects that we give them. So, for example, we're going to be quite novel and we we have a, a blockchain solution that will store irretrievably all of the information from the start to the end so that a government, if it looked at the data, could trust that it hadn't been manipulated and changed. So the blockchain just enables the non-manipulation and the seed to sell software that sits on top of that keeps all of the information from the birth of the seed as it goes through the field, who harvested it, who put it on the truck, who milled it, who put it in the extraction okay. machine, what time did it go in. That will then correlate with a log number on the extraction machine. We will then be able to go and look at every parameter that ran on that machine when that plant was running through it, the pressure, the temperature, everything. And that's just a, giving more confidence in your customer in terms of consistency in the product? Well, for them and us, it yeah. gives us the capability and the knowledge of knowing that I'm keeping within such sharp boundaries that I'm going to be producing a medical-grade pharma product because those are the lengths you need to go to. And for the client, obviously, they're going to be able to see the entire mm. birth of their products. But, uh, uh, I mean regardless you control that data so therefore there's still like uh i control uh, it but can't uh, manipulate it you cannot manipulate it no and this is a key part of where, well, where because where it's we, on the blockchain yeah and this oh, okay, is okay that's interesting it, it's a new technology move for cannabis to utilize blockchain because uh, most people just think bitcoin money uh is on the blockchain no the blockchain is just a technology that enables a diverse set of data to be stored irretrievably decentralized in a multiple yeah. decentralized fashion yeah um, and that is what the feds, that's one of the reasons federally cannabis has not got to the final push as well. It's not just political. There really hasn't, hasn't been the technology to give complete compliance and, f- you know, faith to the government yeah. that people are towing the line. Taxes are being disclosed correctly. It, it, you know, with the, with the blockchain system, if I spill some distillate, THC distillate on the floor, a QA person has to come, sign off, what was spilt, who did it, and that then is destroyed off the list. You know, that's a grey area, destroying products and things like that. Yeah. You, that's where loss of profits and well, you've you got investors. No, it's not just the profits, it's more the lit- it's more the litre of oil going ah. down to going down to Miami Beach. Ah, the wa- waste management waste management. Yeah, the waste ma- so you, how do they know that mm. that actually did get destroyed and, and it and that person that signed it off. So this is all building a system of of you know non repudiation, and and Nicholas, were you aware of this as well? Like or this concept of the blockchain in terms of measuring all throughout the entire process? Um, I've I've heard of blockchain being used in other industries, uh, um, as a way but not of, at this type uh, of not in weed. No, I've heard of I'm, I had heard a couple of people in the U.S. create token like tokens. I think that they meant for sale, so that it was anonymity anonymity and sale. So if you were to sell or buy it, there would be no it would be 
so the government couldn't trace. That's a, no, that's a separate thing. That's, so we've tokenized. We're offering an IPO tokenization of our business too. So you can, instead of buying a share, you buy a token that represents a plant for, say, $10. But is it finite? Like the token, like Bitcoin is finite. Like there's only X amount. So well, you, like on your blockchain, you, you, is your, so you, your token is finite or? Well, we have two, 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 it's a different blockchain. One blockchain manages the seed to sale stuff. Yeah. That's just like a normal SQL database in it. Just imagine it as a database, but it's just not owned by us. So we can't screw it around. The tokenization also sits on a blockchain, but that's a monetary, that's a monetary gain. It's like buying so shares. Yeah. We're, we're basically going to offer all the plants as shares. You buy a share. A, i.e. a plant, in three months' time, that plant doubles in value. Your $10 token is now worth $20. And where would people buy it? It has to be, like, what's the platform we have, I we, need we, to we, enter? We, we have a website where we are offering the coins, where you go, you buy your coin with your credit card, yeah. and then later on you can cash your coins in when you want, and obviously sell them through BitCub or one of our uh, Binance, etc. So it could be accessed by Binance? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a money making. That's a separate money making side yeah. to let small investors capitalize on, on on the green rush. And I mean, in that whole concept <laughs> of let's say the big or blockchain of, of um, uh, purchasing shares, essentially or tokens. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a conversation on its own that we could go it's down a, a rabbit hole so for yeah, about an hour. Yeah, of course. So uh, yeah. my my as a. If I am a, if I'm an American, well, I'm not a Canadian, but if I'm an American and I'm looking to find a CBD supplier, um, what are the top three things that you would look at? Are, now, uh, Nicholas, are you, do you take, do you purchase CBD? Do you, or? or um, do I, uh, yeah, see, okay. I, I don't buy it by itself, but I do like it okay. as a part of other things. When you... When you did purchase, are you doing your research on who you're getting it from and what types of things are you taking into consideration before making that decision? Yeah, so I'm definitely looking to see if they have CUAs. I'm looking to see where it comes from. I'm looking for information on that lab. I'm looking for just common sense mistakes on the COA. I'm trying to think of someone who's just practically an everyday person who's going to be going and looking that fi um, to find something. Yeah, hold them accountable. Because like you said earlier, you could test on a batch and 10 batches later you're using the same. Yeah, that, that's my that's kind of the point I'm trying to get to of my main concern is, um, and it, again, to educate people out there is, and probably some of our terminology, it might be going over some people's heads because it's all new to them. Um, obviously, I've been researching this stuff on, on <laughs> in my world for about a couple of years now, but how can people gain access to the COA of a specific batch? Like if they bought a, a tincture of CBD, um, there has to be a lot number on there. Is that COA public or how can they gain, how can they get that information? It's up to the company normally. Yeah. I mean, this is where the first thing you want to look at. So straight away, if there is no COA offered on a website, if they don't state that they offer per batch COAs, leave the website straight away. Because where would you find that information well, on the website? The, is there a specific like a learn section or like how how would they be able to navigate that? Mo most people should advertise in their FAQs in their frequently answered questions if they offer COAs. And I would look on the page of the actual product itself. So most professional. So, for example, we would offer on the actual product page uh, a, a copy, an example copy of the little tag that you'd be scanning and the COA that it would bring up. So what you would expect to see and how to read that COA as well. Yep. That's all on a tab of information on the product. 
So it's very clear from immediate day one. Every we, we go through the process. We explain how we get a batch lot number, what that means, and how we can recall batches. This COA pertains just to your bottle, yes. not, not, not to one we did two years ago. They're live bottles. And they can be verified, the COAs. Because it's third party at this point. Yes. It's that's, that's what's very this important is, to understand. This is the really important part. Yes. Yeah, it's not our test. Because anyone can make that shit up. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, so, yeah, there's, and there, therein lies the trust with the customer. Yeah. If you can scan the, the uh, code on the back of a bottle. And it goes to the third party. And imagine on our products, yeah. it doesn't just even bring up the COA. It brings up the name of the farmer that grew your plant. We could even, if we wanted to, have a little picture of him there. So you could see the picture of the family that grew the, you know, the plants. And then we can, it, it really is, there's no level where it could end. We can have video footage of the, of, the, of the plant going into the extractor. So someone could see, wow, that actually was my plant. And that's the batch that went through the machine. So your business model then in Thailand, well, you're going to be involved. Uh, which part do you um, leave the process and hand it over to the the supplier you're not obviously you're not dealing with the end user right are no. you planning to kind of be uh, the manufacturer we would call you or the wholesaler we're going to be we're a vertically integrated business actually so we do actually have retail and clients yes so we will be setting up uh, dispensaries and clinics and we will be supplying hospitals and medical practitioners obviously with prescription grade products um, we'll be supplying white label products uh, yeah. the wholesale oils <coughs> and bulk products, a whole massive range of different cannabinoids. Well, then your pricing structure has to be all set up so everyone can make a piece of pie well, throughout the process, right? The pricing structure is a closely guarded secret because yeah. um, at the moment, uh, America is burning on a glut, selling a, through a glut of product. When that glut's gone, we're going to have a, a, a resetting of the commodity price globally of the CBD market. What do you mean by that? Well... America at the moment, so look, just some basic figures, it costs America, tw a farmer, $20,000 to grow one acre of hemp plants in a field, approximately, if you look at average figures, maybe twenty to 25000 US. And are you taking in consideration height and weight? Well, let, let, just look at just generally what that generates. So that one acre, on an average, will make about 50 kilos of CBD isolate. I, I got offered isolate this morning at 250 US dollars a kilo. Wow, if, you <clears throat> if you work out, uh, they've got 3,000 kilos of it, and he's got lots of friends that equally have just as much sitting in a shed. Okay, let's define CBD isolate first, just because I think yeah, that's just a term so, yeah, so sure, people okay. understand that. So well, you, 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 have, you have the CBD plant, which has got mainly cannabidiol. We process that with a first level of extraction to a crude oil. The crude oil then has lots of plant waxes, chlorophyll, contaminants in it. So we put that through a distillation system. That purifies it to, say, 92 93% CBD. But it still contains some other contaminants. So we then put it through a final process where we then crystallize the CBD out of the solution. And it drops out. Are you using like a spray dry technique? Or? Well, uh, we actually use a, a very high tech, um, continuous uh, process of it's a special machine, a counter current crystallization like spin, reactor. Spin dry or completely no, different? No, the normal way is just a, <clears throat> a reactor, just a big vessel. You dump the oil in, you put pentane, which is a hydrocarbon, into the CBD oil, and then you have a stirring device, and then you alter the temperature and pressure of the reactor 
and at various stages of temperature and pressure, the crystals will crystallize out. And you then wash them, clean them, dry them, chop them up to a specific size, and that it looks like sugar. That will be your CBD isolate. So we, you're saying that uh, one acre, one acre, co- a farmer will their 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 cost will be twenty grand, about twenty to twenty five thousand, just to grow the flower. To grow we've the not, flower, we've not extracted it Correct. at this stage. Now they give it to a processor, where they can either pay money to extract and get all the product back, or they can donate. Well, I say donate, they get charged a proportion, 20% on an average, a tolling fee. So they get 80% back of whatever it is that they ask for. It could be they could ask for crude, distillate, or isolate. So if you do the quick maths, you'll work out that I think it was about $8,000 worth of isolate is currently for sale now, and that costs twenty to 25000 just to grow the flour. So... The farmer's making about a 60% loss currently. There's a glut like this in America right now. Everyone jumped on the bandwagon and farmers just dropped what they were doing, dropped the strawberries and the corn and ran to hemp because they thought it was gold. Mm -hmm. They had no idea about the market they were getting into. They just thought that the world required oil tankers of this stuff going out the door. And in fact, no, we don't need oil tankers. We need small tankers of specific oil that's been produced in a specific way and they didn't think about this they were buying extraction equipment keeping it on the farm in a shed making crude this is not medical grade this is not a gmp building um so they've lost loads of money because they've invested in that equipment yeah most of them have invested not just equipment but just the farming they gave up their traditional farming methods jumped into this they've now got barns full of flour i've got flour for sale if anyone wants 15% CBD flour, $10 a kilo. Yeah. You know, it's almost valueless now. So, but when it's, so when it's gone, it's gone. What farmers are going to come back in knowing what's just happened? I don't think many, because here's the sad part. Thailand, we're 10 times cheaper with labor. Average cost of an hour's labor in America is about $20 to $25 for one hour, just for a farm worker that basically cuts weeds. Now, I'm paying, I get 10 members of staff for that, for a whole day. So, sorry states, but your days are numbered for the... For the manufacturing side or the farming side. Well, yeah, the the farming side, I keep telling people, it's like growing tomatoes. There's no reason it shouldn't be. There's no value in the growing. It's that's that's the it's not the easy bit, but it's the it's the first low value bit, so to speak. It's then the further processing, the the GMP lab, the facility, all the testing. It's everything else that is all your R and D. Yeah. You know why do you think most drugs from pharma companies cost us so much money because of all of the extra care and attention that a pharma didn't put in? So at the end of the day, whoever's prepared to spend the money and put this work in will be the ones that benefit down the road. I mean, most, e- most EU CBD has got to come off the market and the shelf in the next few months because the manufacturers haven't put it through a GMP facility and it doesn't have UK novel. It doesn't have so it's action. just not economically viable for it to be farmed in the U.S. at all. No, not anymore. So it doesn't make any sense. Especially in areas in the U.S. I mean, there's areas in the U.S. Because it's siloed state to state, you have states where there's really mar- have no business growing marijuana plants no. uh, in their environment. Because of the cost of the land and the labor. Well, well just flo- the Look at Florida. There's people growing Florida. They really, really insisted that they were going to get some action. So they developed a few strains that grow in 
the humidity of Florida. But they're still doing this Crazy. to this day. It's being grown in Canada, Colorado. But I mean, eventually there'll be a point when the market, it's, it's just too expensive to follow that. that, I that don't, there's no agricultural method. product in the world that is distributed like that, right? Well, we have regions that are amenable to the growing of apples and they grow the apples and you ship the apples from those regions. Okay, so this is the problem. Everyone jumped on it like a cash cow and they're trying to grow, grow it in every single and state and not realizing that's just not how and they farming's that, done. Yeah, they knew the truth too, okay? Because look, yeah. they, when the price of isolate was at about $800 a kilo, that was literally breadline break even for the farmer at 800 So the farmer's selling at 800 Farmer, No, the farmer needs to basically give his product away and end up with the isolate that comes out the end of it being able to be sold for about 800 to give him probably about $700, $650 per kilo for that isolate. What, what is the, the extraction ratio? Meaning like how many kilograms are grown in this acre? And at the end, what do you end up with in terms of weight? But I know it's hard to tell because now it's gone from a solid to an oil. Well, no, it's fairly, I mean, it's fairly set figures if you understand it. So uh, 1,500 plants spread out at five feet spacing is about 4,000 square meters of space. When you cut them down, each plant weighs about uh, maybe between a pound, about a pound in weight of flour, of dried flour from each plant, which is, what, half a kilo of, yeah. of, of dried flour. So you've got about 750 kilos, so let's say between six and 800 kilos of dried flour. In that acre. In that acre. And let's say you didn't need to be so conscious of the THC con concentration, and so you could let it get a bit hot, like I can here in Thailand. I can go up to 1% in the field. So I can allow my plants to get to 15% CBD easily, maybe even 20, which is the critical deciding factor on the volume of oil. Mm -hmm. So when I do the first crude extraction on that volume of material, I'm going to probably get 100, 112 kilos of crude. Then I winterize my crude, take the oil and fat out, and probably go down to 80 you're looking 80, like 80 kilos kind of like a, almost a one to eight extraction well it gets, it gets worse then i distill it and i'll yeah. probably end up with 60 60 kilos and then even worse if i drop it to isolate i'll probably get 50 55 kilos of isolate approximately okay so i think this is a good segue into the next topic which is what is the difference between a high-end cbd product and the stuff you buy at a gas station the difference between a high-end like a, a very a, a very top-of-the-line CBD product and something that you can get cheap at a gas station because again in the mushroom world I can I can buy lion's mane mushroom from a supplier for $12 a kilo and I can also buy it for 120 now what's the, the difference in that case extraction ratio so what they'll do I'll explain that so yeah I don't need to show this whatever so what they do is um, for medical grade lion's mane, actually, let's let's focus on reishi. For medical grade reishi, you should be taking a twenty to one ratio, which means I need twenty kilograms of dried mushroom reishi powder to turn it into one kilogram of powder. And they and and to get to that point, there's a pretty simple process. It's mostly mostly from like water and alcohol extraction, and then finally, what they're doing is they're just adding more water and using spray dryer machines to concentrate it. So they're taking that 20 and turning it into one. That's going to cost you about $120 a kilogram buying from the farm or from the factory, basically. Now, if you just took the reishi, 
your 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 flour and you mm. just turn that into a power and powder and it was one to one you can buy that for like 10 bucks a kg the problem is on the market <laughs> if you put both powders on the ground like this you can you can barely tell the difference one's going to be a little bit more darker right and the ones that are weaker are going to be a little bit more whiter so i understand that because i'm involved in it so that's kind of the question back to the cbd side and the thc side how well, does the client how do they know what they're purchasing and what types of uh, information should we be looking for on the ball bottle to determine is the juice worth the squeeze well i think i, th I think i'm not sure if you agree but i'd say the first thing that should be cleared up and irritates me with this whole industry are people selling hemp oil without specificity well let's just be clear hemp oil could be anything it could be hemp is just a plant I see what it could saying. be it could be oil that's got CBD in it or it could be hemp oil from the actual seed of the plant right. so if you squash the seeds of a, of a hemp plant or a marijuana plant they contain about 30% fat content makes a great oil which is food grade and we use it as a carrier oil for mixing and diluting lots of different CBD oils and things but at the end of the day it's a nutritional food supplement with zero THC or CBD zero it never had it and it never will mm. and yet there's people pretending that they're selling bottles of hemp oil for 20 30 50 dollars whatever misleading people into thinking that it's CBD it's not there's no CBD so we would even be misled in, in the lab receiving CBD bottles that were advertised the way you said yeah. they would even say a thousand milligrams of hemp and to an everyday passerby they all oh, a thousand milligrams of hemp and you'd get in, there'd be no CBD. So mm. They're referring to the hemp, but deliberately not including the, C the CBD on the label. They're just tricking people. It's a bit of smoke and mirrors well, there. Well, CBD doesn't yeah. get you high, you see. So you would never know, really, if you actually, to be honest, took it, unless we took a blood sample and did some serology and had a little look. Um, it's another so example of the onus being way too much on the consumer. At the yeah, moment. we've just been duped, basically. The market's been completely duped. This is one of the reasons this is all tightening up now. Um, and the back to the COA becomes so important because really the best thing you can do when you're looking at CBD is learn how much you need and then look at the way in which you want to take it. And then you need to look for a manufacturer that has very specific contents instructions on how much CBD milligrams is in a bottle verified with a COA. That, that, that is the key part, the number of milligrams and the number of drops in the bottle. So therefore you can work out, it should clearly tell you per dosage serving, how many milligrams of CBD you've just about to ingest. An average human needs what, between 50 and 80 milligrams a day is an average dose for CBD. And you, you look at some of these bottles again, 500 milligrams in 30 milliliters. You'd need about 15 mm -hmm. to 20 you drops. Just, just to, the whole thing. You may as well just drink it. Mm -hmm. And they're telling you to take a few drops a day. So you've got companies that don't know how to dose it because if they did, they'd make, so if our products, you'll Is that a concentration issue then of yeah. the product? And, and that, let's go back to your, uh, your processing and, and that's where I'm trying to put it together because the way you explained your process, you get the flour, you explained about three different steps yeah. of process, meaning are there companies that are skipping step two and three and selling one? No, you can't skip the steps to get to one, to get to the end, end I, well, 
It depends again. To get that, this, this, to is that where, this is where there's more cheating. So if you make a very reliable oil, full spectrum oil, that comes out of a plant time after time the same, you can rely on that to put into your tincture bottles because you don't get variation, because you've controlled your growing and your genetics. Now, some companies just think, I can't be bothered to do that. So what I'll do, I'll buy isolate powder. I'll knock that down. I'll dissolve it in a carrier oil, like MCT or hemp oil, and then I'll sell that as CBD oil. But what you're actually doing is you're selling people, it's not full spectrum, there's no other added components in there, which, to be honest, the medical f society think we need. What you have enabled yourself to do is to make a very, very accurately dosed product. Okay, that part, you just lost me a little bit there. Um, the, the part where you take your, your isolate crystal, essentially, yeah. and now you're saying the way they cheat it is they're adding it with hemp oils? It would yeah. be like malt liquor and beer, right? So malt liquor is not beer. It's an emulation of beer. Yeah, right. and like uh, it's not, and we're not emulating anything. What we're doing is that isolate is still CBD. It's still the main product that was in the full spectrum oil that really should have been used to make the product. It's just that it's so concentrated. It's now not nearly nearly one hundred percent pure, which is why it's a white crystal. Now I can ke chemically weigh that out. So say I want a bottle with one and a half grams of active ingredient in thirty milliliters. All I have to do is weigh out one and a half grams of this isolate, put it in the bottle with the right amount of carrier oil, and it's bang on, plus okay. minus 4% every and that's, time. That's your product, and got that, it. And that, no, but it, it, it's not necessarily the product you want to make because you can buy isolate, as we've just said, it's cheap as chips now, and you can make up these ch cheap tincture bottles that on the face of it are quite accurate. But actually, there's still a bit of crookery People are describing, they then stick a little bit of terpenes and a few other things in and call it broad spectrum or full spectrum. And it's yeah. not. Well, it's not pure. It's not, it's not full spectrum in that it, it's been taken all the way to a, a, an end product that's completely pure and then reconstituted into something that someone feels is beneficial. So essentially they're just diluting it. It's not the real plant that we started with. Yeah, I understand. Like when we're talking about full spectrum, we're talking about the range of medicines that are in cannabis naturally. Yes. And when you talk about full spectrum oil, you're talking about an oil that mirrors that specific range of medicines in an oil form. And, and with and isolate, you can yeah. artificially recreate that natural... Yeah, so you can never go wrong. Basically, if you analyze some manufacturer's tincture bottles, they will be the same year in and year out because they're using chemically inert CBD isolate to make, a, a ban uh, make up their product. They haven't, they're not like us. They're not, they're not gone to the effort to make a full-spectrum bottle that time after time is consistent, and within standards so you're, you're, genetics. You're taking your, yeah. you're taking your isolate and you're putting this into, let's say, a tincture bottle. What is the carrier you're using of oil? Is that uh, standardized? No, again, not standardized, is it? We've, I, I, I understand that there are many grades of hemp oil. From, there's lots of different seed varieties. So every time you cold press the oil out, if that was your choice of carrier oil, um, different. Olive oil is another choice. Um, largely coconut, largely MCT oil. But, uh, yeah, MCT. on the whole, medium chain triglyceride made why, from coconut. Why is that that MCT, MCT is the more popular oil, or you should be using that? Is there Ke like is chemical like stability? Chemical it, it, stability. It has the longest shelf life. Coconut oil and extra virgin coconut oil, six months shelf life. Really. So let, let's recap. Um, 
I'm going to assume there's a certain level of, let's call it like super medical grade where the average person doesn't need, and that's going to be very expensive. I'm sure if we were to to uh, have a very high concentration in a single tincture, and maybe you only need a half a drop or a drop, whatever. That's not the point of my question. The point of my question is, what are like maybe the, what is the checklist of information you're looking for from a supplier beyond all that COA and, and certification information we were discussing, but more on the product itself that you're looking for that you can justify that this is quality? Is that even possible? I mean, that's real. I think that's a lot of that comes down to personal preference too, probably. Yeah, you get, yeah. At, at that well, point, uh, if you've got the COA and you trust in that part, I'm, I'm focused. Um, I'm focused not on the psychoactive or THC by, but purely on the CBD side for, let's say, headache, inflammation, like this. This is my focus. How do I know I'm getting the most potent product out there that's going to have the most benefits for me, and I'm not getting duped by some sub supplier that's diluting the product? Well, I, I think looking for a, a, a full spectrum oil, isn't it, with a good COA from a reputable company? And you have, yeah. and your only way to to determine that is you need to look at the COA yourself and analyze that, a and look at the process that they used to derive that oil. Yeah, I think that's so. You need too. to you need to ask: Was your oil made from isolate that you reconstituted, or is this the first 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 cut of full spectrum oil out of the machine? Okay, and that's what I meant by step two and three that I said some companies can skip. That's kind of what brought me back to that question. Because you, your final one was this uh, crystallization process. But essentially, you're talking about step two. People could s skip step three? You, you could skip step three. I mean, I, I, I'm doing step three as well to make isolate. Contrary to what I just said about not making tinctures with it because I don't believe in it, I, I do make certain other products with it. So it's the basis and starting point for all the water-soluble CBD products. Correct. Um, it, you can't really make a water-soluble product actually technically with the oils. You can emulsify them, break them down, nano-emulsify them, but they're still, it's an oil over water emulsion. But now you're talking about water-soluble crystals. Yes. 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 Okay, and that, and, and that actually is the same in the mushroom industry. The highest quality product are the water-soluble products, but they are fucking expensive. Like, well, very expensive. Like, I'm talking double the price of anything on the market. And and the industry... And mirrors. Well, the problem in this industry is um, I can sell this product at $29.99, and it's a, it's a very good product. It's not medically graded for a cancer patient that actually has cancer. It's more... This is a preventative medicine. If you want to go to the cancer level stuff, you're paying two to three times the cost. I'm talking you'd be spending 60 bucks a month on medicine. It's interesting that that doesn't you can't. happen in the CBD market. Yeah, this market, because it's been so fucked up by cheap Charlie's coming out and selling $12 bottles. It's out there. You can go buy a $12 bottle of Lion's Mane, no problem. But it's absolute garbage. It's sugar pills. So I guess that goes goes back to your side that process of making it water soluble crystal crystals this is what is driving up the cost it's not actually no i'll be completely honest with everyone um just smoke and mirrors to be honest it's all bullshit to make the water soluble product i take uh isolate i dissolve it in 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 some chemicals in, in a carrier um and then i put an emulsifier in it equivalent non-technical non term fairy liquid I then put put it through a piece of equipment that has a, a horn that makes a lot of noise, and this breaks up in a chamber as the oil's flowing through. 
breaks it all up into tiny little pieces, coats it together with the emulsifier, and then I put it through another machine that produces the water-soluble powder. Apart from the cost of the equipment, it's actually not much more. It costs nothing to really so produce. So why wouldn't people do that? Well, we do, we do it for only specific... It's not done to elevate the value of the product. It's done to elevate the number of possibilities of use of the product. It gives the cannabinoid extra powers, basically. Like, naturally, THC is not soluble, particularly in water. No. So if you want to make a drink, you're going to make a water-soluble THC. That, there you go. That's the use of it. Now, he's, he's, he's nailed it, and on the two fronts, actually. It's to make it soluble, to be able to put in a drink... Let's say you want to make a uh, CBD beer. Okay. If you put distillate in it, it's just going to float to the top. It'll look a mess. It'll be awful. No one's going to want that. You make the water-soluble CBD, put that in the beer. Great, you've achieved a nice product. And at the same time, if you've nano-emulsified it, what that means is you, you've made it really small in size, the oil droplets, down to about 20 nanometers. And then they can be absorbed into the body and you can really quickly. The bioavailability is much, much higher. But it sounds so that press you're using, is it adding heat? Is it destroying the oh, enzymes yeah, and any and no. like the destroying the potency instead of if you did it as like let's no, say no. a cold press? No, it doesn't break it because what you're putting in is pure C B D. And it, it so what it actually does is it just breaks up the molecular size of the droplet from say a hundred, two hundred nanometers in size, a ball, a sphere down to a 20 nanometer sphere. We're still not down to the atomic level yet. So yeah. no, we've not broken anything. And uh, as Einstein said, you can neither destroy nor, destroy nor create matter. Yes. So it, what come, what, it, it's in a cycle going around. It's just been made smaller and smaller. And then, and you're, you, and then there are probably like micro, microencapsulation where you would, those small pieces, you would wrap them in a soluble. And that's the next step. So, yeah, you've, you've nano-emulsified it to a small thing, but it's not water-soluble now. It's still just a little oil ball. Now you can Unchanged. get like, Now you get something like a lysosome, which is like a, it's like a little carrier, like a football, with yep. a water-soluble outside and a fat-loving in the mi middle core. So that grabs the little 20-nanometer ball of oil, sucks it into the middle, coats it in all these lovely tentacles that love water, and at the molecular level. At a molecular level. Yes. And that so people aren't trying to visualize this. So you're yeah, not no, dissolving. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't have a little... <laughs> yeah, it's not. And, and that's what then allows your, 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 your little ball of oil to dissolve into the water. Mm. The little heads, the hydrophilic heads sticking out of the lysosome attached to the water molecule and are attracted to it with hydrogen bonding, mm. which allows dissolution. And at, th at this level of understanding, like when you were doing your testing, did you have to be educated in that? Were you already educated in that? Or was it, was it a requirement for a part of your job to understand that? When I started, we didn't have a lot of microencapsulated oils. Um, so when they first started coming in, we had this wave of people doing that. We thought that they were pure isolates. And we would test these isolates, and they'd come back 20%. So we weren't penetrating that outer layer and reaching the, the CBD or THC inside. Um, so it... You have to break the lysosomal coats. Up. Right, the extraction wasn't working. So it, it was, we were extracting based on it being an isolate, and it's not. So you're not technically dissolving the CBD in the water. You're suspending it in a water, and its friend is dissolving in okay. the water, essentially, well, right? You've I got two partners. I guess you put it through a gas chromatograph, though. It was still coming up. That was because that's going to burn. Yeah, you, yeah. If you were doing a uh, a like a potency test on gas chromatograph, we were using um, from the bulk of our CBD samples, we were using liquid, and then some of the higher level samples we put on the mass spectrometer. 
But the methods that we had for extracting THC, we, de- we developed a new method. For, it was similar, similar to um, the method we use for gummy bears, pulling THC out of gummy bears. Um, we used for the microencapsulated oils. So you have an outer layer that you need to destroy to get into the THC and then analyze. And uh, again, jumping onto the potency and understanding the quality of your, your CBD product that you're purchasing. Um, and I know we've talked a lot about the COAs, but beyond the COA testing for pesticides, specifically on the potency, what are you guys testing for and what are the industry benchmarks that people should be trying to hit? And I think that goes more into the cannabinoids, uh, flavonoids. Um, Obviously, on the THC part, you need it less than 0.3. So uh, let's talk about those, um, what do we call them, metabolites at at this stage? In the lab, we just referred them as the active compounds. Yeah, the active compounds. What active compounds are you testing for CBD? um, And what are the benchmarks you're trying to hit to make it, let's say, of a quality product? Well, we had two classes. We didn't do flavonoids. We had the can- set of cannabinoids, and we had terpenoids. Yeah, my, my, uh, only some advanced researchers are looking at the flavonoids, to be honest with you, which Pretty is sad. Nice. But um, I, I, I think, actually, the answer to your question, there really isn't one, because what makes a quality product is what, what you were trying to achieve with the end product in that particular area of the you know, production line. So, for example, crude oil the first level of extraction from a plant, you would hope to end up with a, a, a nice, good quality, concentrated crude oil of, say, 40 to 50, 60% CBD concentration, free of as much wax and chlorophyll, so you don't have to post-process too much. That would be, if, if I got that at the end of my stage one, I'd be happy. So is that, that measurable, though, at that, that Yes. Like, analytically, yeah, there's, yeah, you can, absolutely. Get, you can uh, do testing to Yeah, sure, to you take the out. crude oil to the machine and you, you, okay. you test it. Um, and then the distillation process, again, that, that, that's, um, you've got expectations there because in distillation, the process of what you're trying to do is, is basically purify to about 90, 93%, 4%, the cannabinoid in question, CBD, and remove everything else. So your objective, purify to at least 90% and remove everything else. So you can remove a lot of pesticides, heavy metals. You can remove all the other minor cannabinoids. And you can produce them into separate glasses. And can they be used for something else? Obviously not the heavy metals. No, of course. We collect the fractions. Like like making petrol, with exactly the same process. Different temperatures and pressures different fractions from the mixture come off and you can collect them individually as you go depending on how high tech your distillation system is so our main goal at the end of distillation is to end up with a high quality 90 plus percent distillate Um, and then again if you're making an isolate your end goal would be a 99 plus percent isolate which you didn't have to wash too much and dissolve a waste product with it was clean when examined with lab testing equipment of thc it was and then that that 99 then the the active compound you're testing is the the cannabidiol yeah that's what you're testing for yeah we're looking at and then you're looking at 99 plus what would be what other active compounds or what else is left there that is making up that half a percent or whatnot well that's a very good question uh 
Well, I think for key for everyday people to understand is that marijuana versus alcohol in terms of the content of compounds. When you drink alcohol, you're drinking ethanol. You're taking one compound. doesn't matter if you drink beer or wine. Um, marijuana has dozens of active compounds. And if you're talking particularly cannabinoids, you've got CBD, THC, CBN, CBDV, THCV. You have, we tested for 11 or 12 in the last lab I was at, and they all have unique medical properties. So if it's key what James said about your intent in taking the product. If you're taking a product because you want to sleep better at night, you're going to want to target CBN, or you're going to, you're going to want that product to have particular isolates that have particular medical properties. And that's what st strains are. You have different strains, and they have, they're composed of different terpene profiles, and they have different medical properties. Um, so he's pulling off fractions. His intent is to get CBD. But he's pulling off extremely... He's pulling off compounds that are useful well, the other thing in you've the process. You've got to remember, C CBD, what, what, what will actually be left are other minor cannabinoids and flavonoids. Very and low concentration. Uh, uh, yeah, under 1%, because a lot of these cannabinoids have got a very similar boiling temperature to each other. They're very similar. And in fact, the, the, to be honest, the worst one, this is why we produce isolate quite a lot, is to drop out the THC. Because THC and CBD have such a close boiling point, it's extremely difficult to separate the two of them. Chemically, they're almost exactly the same, except for a few bonds, a few chemical bonds. We won't go into their molecular yeah, yeah. structure. Y you can go on YouTube and watch that. There's we, a lot Yeah, you that. go on YouTube and look at, look at, look at the, the molecular and structure, the carbon yeah, yeah, bond yeah. structure and everything, but you'll see that they almost, they're mirror copies of each other. It's just a difference in bond and a, and a, and a carboxyl group that causes all the, all the problems. Mm -hmm. And they're very, almost impossible up till recently to um, to separate. So, distillation is our best best option at first chance. But then, that if you want to go more than ninety percent, ninety nine percent, you've got to go into flash chromatography. And I think probably at that point, it's safe enough. Uh, well, the pr yeah, product is of quality. Yeah, and here, here in this is you know your standards we were talking about, and this is why they cost so much money. That is, your, that's where we end it for the consumer at ninety nine percent, because. I can then recrystallize it, and I'll get it to 99.3. There's a certain threshold where, you know, it's good. Oh, enough. I have to spend triple the money yeah, to yeah, get yeah. the extra 0.5 of a percent, which is what would be required to make it uh, API, uh, an, a pharmaceutical ingredient, yeah. which is a, a, a different product to the standard isolate. And then can, can, at that point, are you able to patent that product or no? Okay, same with mushrooms because it's it's all natural. Yeah. Um, I wanted to jump back when you were talking about the benefits of other cannabinoids within, and, and that's the right way that explaining it, right? Mm -hmm. CBN. You take CBN for let's say sleep. So why is the whole industry more focused on CBD? Is it simply because of the trend, or is it more to do with the benefit of CBD is more valuable to the mass public than the benefits of CBN? Yeah, I think CBD is a more palatable way to introduce the general public to marijuana. I think you, we have decades of stigma and um, things to overcome. And I think CBD is doing a good job of providing medical uh, alleviation for certain things without psychological uh, effects. I think, it, this is, I think this is just the way that cannabinoids are sweeping through culture and becoming a normal part of everyday life. We, we haven't had everyday conversations about cannabinoids prior to 10 years ago. We had everyday conversations about consumption of alcohol 
We have uh, ritual behaviors for alcohol and caffeine and stuff. I think this just comes down to how much the consumer knows. And, and it's not a big part of our culture any, anywhere really in the world. So I, um, we have all these consumer education, you know, check your COA. And it's just for the consumer to defend themselves in this brand new Wild West environment, I think. I think CBN will prove to be a useful product for a wide range of people. But it's not mm. penetrated yet. Well, look, look, I mean, there's two, there's two areas to all these new cannabinoids. They're all new and unresearched. So we actually know nothing about really how they're going to play out in the long run and in which ones we would need, in which concentrations. You know, it's Parkinson's. Do we want mainly CBD, this much THC, and a little bit of something else? Me meaning, um, like, so people understand, like, in terms of research in which it's never even, we haven't gone to that human clinical trial phases yet, of, not, let's not say enough. testing C, uh, CBN. So just from, is it more like uh, bro science at this stage where it's like, well, CBN, it helps with sleep. Or is there still a little bit of research behind that? No, there's, there's two, two ways this is going. There's serious research with all the cannabinoids. So we're looking into Delta 8, Delta 10, THCV, CBDV, all sorts of other cannabinoids now that are proving to have preliminary what looks like great medical potential but then you've also got the recreational stoners S delta eight it's just a legal form of delta nine less potent what do you mean sorry i'm not aware of that term. well so thc tetrahydrocannabinol yep. is, is is delta nine the delta nine comes from the position of the carbon bond okay it's in position nine it's quite boring position eight it's exactly the same shape, but the bond's in position eight. It's just the way the just, molecular structure just the way comes one, up one little the tail bond. turns. Yeah. yeah I was watching this yesterday. I'm like, I know that's it. <laughs> so you put, you, put the, you put the bond in position eight. Yeah. It's not, we, you've now got a psychoactive drug that the FDA don't control. Right. It's we the only control delta nine. Mm. We, so all the time we create these new psychoactive drugs, which recreational stoners like because they cannot get into trouble. So currently, we've got Delta-8 and Delta-10, two THC variants, neither of which are controlled by any governments. So you can legally buy them. And do you know what? You can make Delta-8, you get CBD, isolate. And I won't go through the SOP now because it's yeah, worth yeah. a lot of money and I can charge people hey. for that. But um, you can make, I can make THC, Delta-8, Delta-9 and 10 from CBD in a backwards conversion mm. because we've got so complex now with this. It's just chemistry. Do you mean uh, like essentially reverse engineering? Yeah, I can reverse engineer. I can make CBD oh, into THC. I'm, is that recording? Yeah. Okay, never mind. We're back. <laughs> I just, I, I wasn't sure if like green, green or red was recording. <laughs> oh, we're doing good. It's okay. So we're still recording. We're good. Okay. So, um, sorry, did, I, I, I might've cut you off there. No, that's fine. That's Continue fine. on that. So what, what was that? Where was that? Um, Delta nine, Delta yeah, ten, yeah. and and in reverse engineering yeah, these into conversions. So um, before that goes over my head, it, do you mean you're you're kind of just taking your CBD isolate and reverse engineering from there to make a different derivative? Uh, yeah, exactly that. And how would you do that chemically? Oh, that's the SOP. You well, can't listen, oh, okay. Now I can give you. It, I got it, you. It, okay, it, I got it, it. In brief, you basically use what's called a Lewis acid. Anyone who wants to go out there and start Googling this. Yeah, good luck. You add a Lewis acid to your CBD mixture, and you then do some stuff with temperature and pressure. 
in a reaction vessel for a certain amount of time, and the longer the reaction goes on, you basically just change the position of the bond in the so CBD. So you nobody has this reaction vessel in their home. But basically, essentially, what you're saying is people could go out, buy CBD, reverse engineer it, and get high. Yeah. But obviously... Actually, it'd be quite easy. I think there's a company in America, Delta Separations, or is it Extract Labs, one of them. They're doing a Delta-8 conversion reactor with all the kit, SOP, full instructions, totally legal to buy. How much is this kit? That's $45,000. Oh, yeah, so $45,000 <laughs> to you. Um, <laughs> you, can, you can pump some isolate into that, yeah. and you can have, you, you get enough THC out so of that. So nobody's doing that. To get a so get, get, you know, maybe do a GoFundMe <laughs> or something and yeah. uh, you can just buy all the CBD and, and then you have access to THC. That's your little lab in here. There you go. <laughs> and were you aware of this information as well? Because so, on, on your side, it's more the, the formulation and the testing side is... is uh, you uh, mean the interconversion of yes. cannabinoids? I, we don't see that or test that. That's fringe. But like in, in receiving products from producers... Um, we kind of get a survey of everything that all the competitors are making on the market. So we, kinda, we have a generally good idea about the technologies that are coming into play and the products. We don't make the products. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Delta-8 is great. But I, I, it's just two ways, you know. Some people are picking up the new science and just getting stoned on it and using it for the wrong reason. And to be honest with you, then obviously we're trying to take it down the medical route and we're naturally investigating. We've got lots of hospitals here, for example, Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of beds, professors, they're very keen to do clinical research on all the cannabinoids so that we can we'll try and start working out which ones in which concentrations together. Okay, so now, now you got, you're, you're sparking my interest or, or I have an idea and maybe I'm completely wrong. So could you not, per okay, now it, it's illegal to sell, um, it's illegal to import uh, obviously THC into the US, correct? Is if you were to take CBD from from Thailand, can you import CBD into the U.S. Sure, and then convert it into THC? In you're US? Sure, you're in possession of THC and you're going to jail. Not unless no. you have a license. No, I mean, if you if you have the license in the U.S., the yes. problem is, uh -huh. I cannot. So did I touch upon some business plan? There? You could do that. <laughs> if it's not expensive. Yeah, you, you you can make look a, a kilo of Delta Nine THC distillates worth you know five six thousand dollars. And you can make that from $500 of isolate. Yeah, so that, that's my point yeah. because yeah. that's the loophole. Well, it's not just as simple as that. You have to have the licensed premises to do that conversion because what you're going to end up with when you make Delta 8 from CBD, you're going to end up with THC Delta 9 in the mix, which you're going to need to remediate and take out. Now, Delta 8 and Delta 9 are even more similar molecularly and stoichiometry wise, but you can still do that at a machine can, in the US. Can, can still do it in a machine. Is yeah. the point? It, yeah, you, you can still clean it up. So now you're you're fixing the labor and cost problem by doing it in Southeast Asia. You're shipping over the CBD because now it's legalized for import, and then you're reverse engineering it in the US back into a medical product. Or if you don't want to be bothered to do all of that, we can just impregnate the correct genetics into a yeast molecule to grow mm -hmm. CBD Delta Nine Delta Eight. And you can just grow it in a fermentation reactor, which is what we're going to do pharmaceutically in the future. And we probably won't touch a plant. There'll be no plants. It'll be synthetic, essentially. Well, no, well, it's yeast-based. It, it, it's not synthetic, um, kind of. I mean, we're taking the real gene that made the end molecule, which is the same however you look at it, and mm. we're just going to get uh, yeast to make it. I mean, where do you think all our vitamin C comes from? Yeah, so it doesn't come out of you're, oranges. You're not jeopardizing the molecular structure. No, no. Yeah. We're, all we're doing that fanaticists would argue about at the moment is, oh, it, it, it's not 
entourage effect because as we've been pointing out, you're stripping everything out. You're only producing one chemical at a time. But my vision, we will have different reactors to produce all the cannabinoids. Maybe when we work out what treatment needs is needed for a specific disease, it's four cannabinoids plus this. So you make those in a reactor. Yeah. Because you can make them constantly, low cost, no electric. Why do you want to destroy the planet with water and electric usage to grow plants yes. when you can do it in a, in, a, in a massive stainless steel reactor in a farmer building? That's where it will be going. It's, do, it's going now, I can tell you. How many years down? You see that 10 It's year? happening already now. Yeah, because I'm on the mushroom side. That was, that's the argument now in the uh, kind of the, the, the mushroom world. They, there's a certain uh, uh, non-essential amino acid that is very uh, prevalent in oyster mushrooms. Mm -hmm. It's called ergothionine. Yeah. And ergothionine is, uh, there's actual clinical human trials being done at the University of uh, Singapore, I believe by the doctor, Dr. Robert Bielman, if I'm correct, I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, but I believe it's him. I actually had a conversation with him, uh, but I've talked to a bunch of doctors, so it's uh, always hard to remember their names. But anyways, they that's the conclusion they've come to because it's not sustainable to harvest, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of kilos of oyster mushrooms to extract the ergothionine. And what they're doing is they're doing it synthetically now in China off yeast. Yeah. So they, yeah, exactly. And there's many ways to synthesize amino acids. Yes. Um, it's actually quite an advanced technology now that we've got. So it, again, much more beneficial. And, and you end up with a cleaner preparation. It's more yeah. stable. Yeah. And would this eliminate then the processing of using things like we were discussing earlier, like Freon and, 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 uh, and uh, you were saying propane and, and ethanol. Well, Do you still need to use those extraction processes when you're doing this uh, fermentation. fermentation? Yeah, sure, because you, you've got a yeast cell. So you have to separate the yeast cell from the active ingredient that's made. So there's still a separation um, that's required. Yeah, how exactly technically that would be carried out i couldn't let on at the moment but what do you think would be the most cleanest beneficial and, and most beneficial way for us to absorb that in terms of the the the, the product you're using to separate those molecules is it going to be ethanol is it going to be butane is it pro uh, not propane i don't think but well, uh freon you would use butane propane it, it picks up thc and it's a it's a great extraction capability for making a full spectrum oil that's why, actually, it's the purest form of extraction. Freon, butane, propane. S CO2 and ethanol cause damage to the full-spectrum capacity of the plant, but in the instance of extracting from a yeast cell, you're only extracting the, the THC or the CBD. So there's nothing else you need to worry about being destroyed. So all you want is a solvent selected for THC, not for the yeast, that will extract that. So... You could potentially use, you've just got pros and cons then. Alcohol extraction would work great, but you've got to use pure virgin alcohol of a specific grade and remove all the solvent. Solvent removals, generically, I mean, it's an, it's an ongoing headache in the cannabis world. People get freaked out about solvent residue. Um, CO2 would be the easiest, cleanest way to whip that out of, you. I guess you would freeze dry it. You could freeze dry the whole lot and then just run it through a CO2 reactor, and that would extract the pure THC, leaving behind mm. the, then just filter it. And in which way, what are the reasons why I want people to use one or the other? Is it because of cost? 
yeah, co cost and perceived safety um, and, and legislation. So, I mean, in Japan, you, you can buy CBD only made from CO2 extraction of industrial hemp. And is that because it's controlled by maybe those markets making those decisions it's and there's lobbyists that have kind of pushed for that? Yeah, they believe and they perceive that that's the only way to produce a clean oil that's acceptable in their society. And so we'd have to, we've got to meet their standards. Okay. So, I mean, there's not many worlds, many countries in the world that just want CO2 only. Generally, people want CO2 oil anyway, as opposed to ethanol extracted, because they perceive it to be a better quality. It's worth more money. And wh what did you see, Nicholas, primarily in your lab? Um, were you able, did you, were, from the testing, were you able to see what type of extraction processes they were using? You could assume, but it's, it's, it comes in and we know what it was extracted with. In Colorado, we saw more butane propane. In Colorado, we saw more boutique extracts, too. So um, yeah. in Florida, we saw much more CO2. What is, what is boutique extracts? What does that mean? Um, you can, so there's m many ways to extract THC from a plant. Um, one boutique extract for, would be live resin, for example. So you're going to flash freeze these, the plants and you're going to extract essentially from fresh marijuana, not dried marijuana. Um, so there are levels of extracts. So like you, you had said, three, there are three steps before you do to get to isolate. These are, they're all extracts. You can have a crude extract. You can have a highly refined extract. You can actually have an extract where you're, you want it to be whipped into a kind of buttery texture. It's all preference, really. And Colorado has a, a really advanced extracts market with a lot of variety. So would they be using, like, f like essentially refrigeration technology for freeze-drying? To the point where it's, they've freeze-dried it so much that it's... It, it no, that's not the point. Basically that's not the turns point. to powder. That, that's not the point of freezing it. Um, just to... What, what he was explaining is um, live resin, you want to capture the true essence of the plant as quickly as possible. So much like the rose industry making perfume in, like, Hungary, for example, when they, when they pick, that's where the Freon system comes from, I was describing to you earlier, that captures the true essence of, of the plant. What you do is you dunk it in liquid nitrogen or freeze it, the plant in a freezer, minus 86 freezer, and as quickly as you can after you cut it. And that stores all the, f everything fresh. Then you put it in the machine and extract it whilst it's frozen. And... So you're not freeze-drying it, you're just, you, you just crush it up when it's frozen and it will break up into little bits, put that into the machine and extract it. And what comes out the other end, depending on what you use to extract it, will be what he's called uh, an extract. So these little boutique extractions, people love dabbing. Okay. I mean, this, this delicious, this live resin. That's the point. It, and this it, it is, but this is for the THC industry because yeah, it's, it's more for the flavor yeah, you're trying I've to... I've seen it in CBD now too. Yeah, but, CBD too. Oh, because you're trying to grab the essence of that plant. It's about the terpenes. Yes, okay. it's all about the... And it's much stronger. So you know these three processes I told you about? If you butane propane extract THC oil, it'll come out 80% plus strength if you do it right. Um, and it needs no further processing because it's got no waxes, chlorophyll... Nothing bad. It's just got the terpenes, the flavonoids, and the THC and the cannabinoids come out. And depending on the temperature and pressure that they do this process will depend upon the final product. So they might be making terp sauce or crumble, which what, has... What, what, do you, what would that be used for? Well, like a, a terp sauce is uh, very terpene-rich. 
So what that that basically pulls out all the terpenes, and and you get like a nice kind of a runny a runny yellow, um, product. A sugary water. Like a, yeah, and it's great in vape cartridges. Amazing. Okay, so this is really more, nice. More for cartridges and yeah, dabs yeah, and, and then and then the crumble looks like literally the top of an apple crumble. Okay, but obviously yellow, waxy, and that is great for putting on a dab rig. Were you dealing with products like this as well, like beyond just uh, a basic, you know, isolate powder and oil? You're dealing with like these more, uh, are they they considered more like a specialist product? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. More people would buy, I mean, they're more expensive too. Like when I was there, a gram of live resin was, I think, 70 or $80 versus you can $30 for a a regular cartridge. Wow. So it's an experience you're going for. Yeah. But we would see all, every, everything. I mean, and, um, there's really no reason you can tell someone that a live resin is not a medical product if they're using THC for medicinal purposes. Mm-hmm. If they choose to take that in a live resin format in Colorado, that's the way it is currently. And you, you have people who, who claim they only receive medical benefits from smoking the flower. So they, you have private individuals that have these legacy licenses where they can grow over 100 plants. Because the, the concentration of their daily medical dosage is so high, and they, they refuse to do anything but smoke flour. So, I mean, just speaking to, you can say, oh, this is just a kind of a THC recreational product, live resin. But there are people that use live resin as a medical relief product, too. Mm-hmm. It, it, it smells great, and it's, when you buy Advil, you buy Advil in a pill. There's no... Advil cookie. There's no Advil, Advil Coca-Cola or injection. Right. Well, you could stick it in a volcano, yeah. dab in a volcano um, bag, and if you needed it medically, and y- you wouldn't get too much of an issue with irritation on your lungs in mm. inhaling it from a bag if you vaped it in through a bag system. Um, that same person might not want to smoke flour. It's a lot more harsh. Most more flour. personal preference as well. Yeah, it's a lot easier. The dose is much much higher. One one little hit on a on a dab rig is equivalent to a good f- good couple of joints. And, and okay, let, let's we've talked a lot about the CBD, and your expertise is more on the THC. So right before we jump into that, um, uh, I wanted to clarify like the definition of terpenes because we've mentioned it a lot on on, on this episode. Um, can you explain? Terpenes and when you were measuring for those active compounds, what were those benchmarks? What were you looking for? What are the purpose and benefits of terpenes as well? Um, so terpenes are a component of the marijuana plant, but they're also throughout nature. Um, they're in fruits. Uh, they're in pepper. Um, they flavor and uh, the, co- the, the marijuana and the taste. Um, research has shown that various ter- terpenes have medical benefits too. You mm. could see as the terpenes as being a part of the entourage effect. Kind of the, full, the holistic approach yeah, to the, the product right. itself. I, I mean, aromatherapy has relied on terpenes for a long time, I think. Um, so there's, not, there's no real like direct uh, benchmark measurement on, on, on a terpene itself? Well, the, like, st- those, the terpenes will define a strain. To, okay. along with the cannabinoids. So if you have a blue dream with a flavor profile and you have a, a, a purple haze with a different flavor profile, that's going to be the, the fingerprint of the terpene. Understood. And like we said earlier, a lot of labs will not test terpenes because the strain has a stabilized genetics where you, you can tell what the terpenes will be. Could um, you, the labs I've worked in have And it's anyway. expensive terpene profiling. Right. Could you uh, use the analogy of like a- applying that to the color spectrum? Meaning like... 
as you put your finger on different, let's say, Pantone colors, which are defined by a number, is a terpene flavor defined by a specific thumbprint or fingerprint as like a, sw a switch of here or there is a it, different flavor? It's a, it's a molecule. It's a molecule, it's a that's it. It's a hydrocarbon-based molecule that is uh, can be fairly complex. There's different types of terpenes. But in essence, they're just chemicals. They're molecules that are pro produced naturally in various, like you said, plants. Like you have limonene from a lemon. Pinene. Mm. The pinene molecule is what makes pine trees have that particular pine smell. Um, all of these terpenes are, vers are present to some degree in a cannabis plant in varying quantities depending on what the strain is. So you, you, we all have, if you go to leafy.com, you'll see for every strain there's a very defined terpene profile for a known cannabis strain. Um, that would be what you would expect to find if you analysed any strain. And all that is is a list of exact chemicals that make up that plant. Okay. So, then, yeah, they're just molecules. Simply, they're molecules. So, uh, from the growing side, um, from the, the seed itself, is it required genetic seed modification to be able to grow a certain flavor of, of a marijuana plant? Or is there something else going on in the process? Like, And again, I, I don't understand that part. Like, Are you adding lemon to the soil? Or is it purely the seed that's allowing it to get that flavor of what you're looking to get? It's the genetics. So, as we just said, look, every each strain has a set of genes that code for all the chemicals that it's going to produce in its life. Okay. And they're set in the genetic genome of that plant. So some strains have genes that express more, for example, pinene. What we don't really know at the moment is how the expression of these genes occurs. So why would you have more pinene expression than, say, lemonine in one strain? So the technical biosynthesis pathways at the back end we're now looking into. But for sure, each strain has a different genetic comp comp composition, which codes for a different varying amount of terpenes. So like humans, if you get two different people from two different races and you breed them, you get uh, genetically, you get, you get the same thing, a human, but it could have different phenotypic expression. So this is it's a lot of crossbreeding over a period of time to yep. get these plants yep. to what so they are. So we can if, if we want plants like Jack Herrer that are predominant, you know, the pinene taste, a lot of people like that, you can breed pinene specific plants together or you might want to create something with a bit of lemon and the pinene. This is so this is how all the strains come about now. We're so specific. You, we know that this strain tastes like this. That one tastes like strawberry. You put them together, you got custard strawberry now. Okay. Or, yeah, the it, same way that humans uh, <laughs> created a hundred dog breeds that are all specialized. Yeah, you know, we've selectively bred marijuana. Same it. same process right. as dog breeding. It's the same process as breeding anything we've bred. Do we see any issues with that in terms of not just the potency but the safety of smoking crossbred marijuana, or is it just evolving and it's okay, it's no problem? That, look, there's some issues in it. You know, I, I I'm I'm a bit relaxed as a person, generally speaking. I'm not too much of a control freak with humans and, and our society. At the end of the day, look, naturally, weed out in the mark in, in the hills was on an average 10, 15%, quite weak THC concentration. There's land race strains, of course, that go up much higher. But on an average, the, the majority of society has been smoking bushweed around 10, 15%. So there's not been many cases, for example, of psychoses, accidents with machinery and cars, 
Um, we all know if you get pissed, you're going to have an accident if you go and drive. You don't do it. Well, it's the same with weed. Why did we all think you could smoke doobies and then go and drive or fly an airplane? Yeah. No, you can't. You can't do that. So maybe so, it's the same as so like it, drinking a beer and yeah, smashing and a bottle of whiskey. It's exactly the same. <laughs> but we've re but what we've done now is we've replaced. Uh, there's not many beers available now. We're only giving the whiskey option. Ah, so yeah. So like most flour is like twenty to thirty percent now. It's pretty pokey. And then these pokey extracts, they're double double that and more. So I remember talking to scientists in the lab saying, "I wish that there would be people who would come out." And their brand identity was, this is not 20%. This well, is there, not are, there are companies now that are, are, are breeding low concentration. You know, yeah, like in, like in, in Israel, you have a, a green book system for, for, for cannabis. So you have, it's called T number and then C number. The T stands for the concentration of THC, the C for CBD. So they have, for example, T10, C0, 10% THC, 0%. CBD, mm. T10, C5, T10, C, C10. They have, but then they, they, they stop at 20. Anything over T20 is basically disallowed because there's no place for it. It can lead to things such as psychosis yeah. and you shouldn't be operating machinery and, on this and, stuff. And the bottom line is we're only, we only all love it, if we're honest out there, guys, to get really stoned. Actually, what we've shown is you, there's no medical... Um, purpose for a, a weed over twenty percent. As you increase, there's a threat. That's the threshold. Yeah, you, 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 twenty percent. You're at the threshold. Is there any danger if you were to hit like uh, fifty, sixty plus? Like, is there danger um, from a, a mental standpoint? Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I I've regularly smoked distillate rubbed rubbed on a joint, which is ninety percent THC along a joint. So, I mean, it's only through the number of years that I've been using THC products that I've developed a resistance. And I, I, I'm just a, maybe I'm lucky that I don't fall susceptible to psychoses and certain problems because I know people that have done. Same. So it's definitely, I can't stand there and say it's harmless. It's not going to kill you. And it's not going to permanently damage you, THC. You might, if you get into a psychosis, decide, i got to quit smoking the weed and yeah. just have to stop. That will be the worst thing that happens. So is it because of the industry is so new and, and it's, I mean, even I've never thought of it in that way in which it's no different than going into the liquor store and buying a beer or a bottle of whiskey. And, and I think it's, uh, everyone was having a pissing contest 10, 15 years ago. Sure. Like how strong is your stuff? Well, I got the cush. Yours is Bush, but <laughs> maybe, maybe they have to take a step back and say like, yeah, maybe you don't need to smoke the, 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 the cush that, that top of the top, your purple haze, whatever. Cause that's kind of what we heard. Uh, especially me growing up, you don't need that and to go to class, to go to work. Maybe there's something different for you. There, ha th there is, and there's a lot of people selling different products now. Most of my friends can't touch half the stuff I produce. It, it, oh, I it's, can't. It's, it's way too I don't, strong. I don't even smoke weed anymore. It's way too, too strong. strong. They, they, they just can't. One, one, one little look at the stuff and they want to go to bed. I, if I, I don't, <laughs> I'll smoke very often and literally I'll have one hit and I'm high for like hours. Uh -huh. But like when I was 15, 16, living in Canada, I probably smoked like three times a day. I met yeah. a lot of people that have gotten like they used to smoke 15, 16, and then they report getting to 25, 30. 25. And it makes, makes them panic and they don't enjoy it so much. I and would get panic, not panic attacks, but I just get a lot of, if I did it in this room, a lot of anxiety. Yeah. But if I would, were to do it and go surfing, it's great because, you know, you're so free. You're so present in the moment because surfing, you have to be because of the waves are coming. 
But if I was to smoke it here and like lay around, then there's so many distractions and things going on and then the mind can wander. Well, and then you've got children. The, the, the actual concern for me is, you know, as an adult, you can choose to get yourself in that position and, and just go and, go and have, to f- have a few hours sleep, get over it. But as a child, yeah, I mean, I remember smoking joints around the back of the car park at school at lunchtime. And thank the Lord, it wasn't like some of this awesome skunk stuff and these concentrates that we're selling now because I probably wouldn't have left. I would have left school. <laughs> would have been too powerful. <laughs> I'd have been too stoned. Yeah. I'd have been carted off by mum and dad back home. Yeah. And we wouldn't have got anywhere. Seriously, yeah, it, so it, it's not a joke actually for the kids, you know, because um, it's it is readily available everywhere. So. Yeah, that's I've had that argument, especially uh, with uh, marijuana and THC, is that they they you do need to regulate it, and not anyone should be able to walk in and just because you say you have sleeping disorder. And the reason that is if you have uh, psychosis in your family, especially things like schizophrenia, you're more prone to, to get that. And I know I've seen people just from smoking weed turn into absolute psychopaths, um, not in the way where they're running around stabbing someone, but just like extremely distant and, and a bit, uh, a bit, delusional. A bit polar like. A little bipolar, a, a little lost in their yeah. world and like um, just their thought process or they're not on the planet anymore. And they need to take a step back. Well, and then you have other issues people don't even realize might not be important, but you don't dream, do you? Yeah, we were discussing we were that as well. Yeah. Like lack of lack of yeah. other, REM other, sleep, other, other things that it affects in your body because it, it does have long term effects, yeah. whether they are good or bad. Yeah, you, apparently you don't get proper REM sleep when you smoke. And uh, I've heard a lot of friends as well, when they stop smoking, their dreams are so vivid after and very intense. Likewise, yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I think if a lot of smokers <laughs> that have given up smoking think back and actually realize and think about that, they'll probably think, oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Because I think what you're... The, dr- the, the dreams came <laughs> back. Go. I could... What, what, wow. What, what I think <laughs> you're, you're doing, a lot of, like, with these uh, botanicals and they're being used for sleep. I, Reishi does this as well. Yes, it's used for sleep and it can help for sleep, but I think you're just sedating yourself in a, in a more natural way. Well, that, yeah, that, that's, not, that's, yes, not that's not quasi achieving. Sleep. That's not achieving a good sleep. It's position. not achieving a good sleep. No, no, no. no. I mean, yeah. Um, okay, d- so let's jump ahead. Uh, how far are we on time? Okay, I want to. Ch- I want to. Uh, Order to five. Are you guys okay? Are you hard stop? Hard stop. Okay. I want to talk. Uh, let's chat about like more on the THC industry. I think we've got quite scientific on everything, um, especially on the COAs and, and mostly on the CBD. But let's jump into the THC and talk more about like legislation in the US, understanding like specifically of THC content 10%, 0.3% for CBD. What is legalized? in the US, what is legalized in, in Thailand and what needs to happen so things can actually start moving forward. And uh, to be honest, I don't know a lot of that information. So let's start on the, on the US side. Um, when you are testing for, C, uh, for THC in Colorado and Florida, um, what were the restrictions? What were you testing for? And just chat a l- little bit about that. Um, uh, not much difference with THC across those states. We tested for more cannabinoids in Florida. Um, but the regulations in Florida were based on the California regulations, which were known as being the strictest in the United States. So we had more pests. I think we tested for seven pesticides in Colorado. Uh, we tested for almost 60 in Florida, and we saw more in Florida down to the tropical climate, 
I think as well. More but I mean, of the product you're testing, is there a, a, a certain level of THC available in the product that you cannot exceed due to regulation? Oh, um, no. I, when Florida started, there was, uh, but now there's none. There's so technically, someone could have a hundred percent THC product. This is legal. There is a hundred percent THC. I mean, close well, to. 100% okay, see, I wasn't because it's not, not a flower, but I mean, so and that's an all across all across U.S. Um, where it's legal, most... Okay, so this is the issue. It's not federally... It's decriminalized in certain states. Um, but there, people are allowed to have medical clinics. You need a license, if, if I'm correct, to be able to sell from your medical clinic, THC. Um, which states, and maybe don't name them all, is it illegal to sell uh, THC in? Texas would be one, I'm Texas assuming. is still illegal. Texas is still illegal. Oh, there's a lot of states in the South that are illegal. I think if you looked at a map, it would mostly be green on the West Coast. And then you might have some new, I think, uh, like Massachusetts was one of the earliest. There is like Maine. Maine, I think, has I, it. Alaska. Maine has it now. I think Maine. Le legalized? Least, recently. I legalized. Okay. I'm getting a tingle recently. It's yeah. just a memory. I might be wrong. There's so many I lose track now. Right. But, but many states, like let's say Missouri, Kansas, is this still uh, illegal in these states? <laughs> yeah. And culturally, they're not as amenable to it in terms of recreation. I think most people... In America, you are you could convince medical is a good idea now. Mm -hmm. uh, Ten years ago, I don't know if that would be even true. So, what's it going to take for it to become federally de uh, well legalized, not decriminalized? What 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 is that? Uh, I don't know. What I is think gonna the be culture's the ready. I think America's ready. Personally, um, I don't think that is something that would stop them. I don't think senators are going to get thousands of letters from people angry that medical marijuana is going to be legalized. I, I whatever is stopping it. It's happening in Washington. I and think like people are angry that they're not yeah, sourcing yeah. it out. The opposite. Because yeah, the, there's yeah. so many of the American population now that are for it. Mm -hmm. I think if they did a proper vote, should we, should we finally thing. nail this federally and, and, de and decriminalize it? I think most people would say yes. I think it'd be a landslide. Yeah. I think politicians are just using it to play around for their own benefit. It's got to be economic lobbying. Could it, could it also be like there's the economically these, let's say, senators or lobbyists, they're trying to uh, structure the environment to see who gets what piece of pie before we sign off. You, like, for example, you can't just sign it today and it, it's going to be a free-for-all tomorrow, right? No. You kind of have to set that up before, right? And that, that therein lies you know, the problem with non-repudiation, making sure that federally they can rely on data from the industry. So up till now, I don't think that they've had the... There's been no centralized government system to use, and I don't think that they um, have trusted individual solutions up till now enough. Not by a long way. Canada seemed to have gone gone, gone with it anyway. Canada's doing awesome. Canada's awesome just job. doing awesome from it. I mean, you just increase your, your tax inspections, and I'm sure that there's ways that governments can mit mitigate that risk. Must yeah. be. Um, Otherwise, why, why, have they, why else have they not decriminalized it? L lack of medicine. Yeah, I would yeah. Lack of research. Yeah. I mean, uh, when I look at the difference in economic structure between each state, and the only thing that would cause that is in the process of the, re of the legislation coming into being, um, that politicians uh, wanted to get in on it. So in Colorado, we have multiple thousand licenses to grow marijuana. It's not that hard to get one. 
But in Florida, it was a uh, uh, vert vertically integrated, what oh, some people call a cartel system. It w literally is cartel yeah. integrated. You, you, if you're not in the know, you didn't get a license. Okay, so what? What do you mean by that? You gotta. There's certain people handing out these licenses. Unless you're in bed with them, you ain't getting one. Precisely. Are there examples of that without naming names or like how? how well, just the fact that it was limited to seven or eight licenses okay. in Florida. Okay, so that, that makes more sense of it. It's yeah. Tiny number of licenses. Yeah. So to, to turn this back to the CBD, THC, what, once you, if your product goes over, what, 1%, it has to be medical? And, and, uh, and I could be completely wrong. I'm just trying to understand that. But on CBD, you don't, need a you don't need a medical license or you don't need to go to a medical facility to purchase CBD, but it has to be under... 0.3 THC. The end product in Thailand has to actually be under 0 0.2. Uh, and I, I'm in US as well. US 0 0.3. Uh, 0.3. And then again, you can buy your gas station CBD if you want. But you can't buy your gas station THC. No, no Delta 8 no. now, but not THC. Okay. No, Delta, yeah. You can buy Delta yeah. 8. All, all CBD products in Thailand under 0 0.2 for commercial sale. But you're allowed, there's a big difference between America for Thailand. In the field in America, you still have to be under 0. Sure, mate. You, you have to be under yep. 0. 0. 0.3, 0. 0.2 still. No, sorry, 0. 0.3. For, for your, your CBD or yeah, THC product. For the, the actual plant the in the field. So. so the feds will come and test 27 plants in a field. And if one of those plants goes over 0.3% THC, they'll come and burn the whole field. Isn't that quite low when you're talking about products that... Amazingly low, which is why these high CBD genetics that they're growing are not reaching maturation. On a plant that takes, say, 10 weeks to flower, every week they will have to be doing a COA on the flower from the field to check where they sit with the THC. We're talking about Thailand. Oh, so well, this is, we'll come to the difference. Okay, so, okay, so, so here, I, here, that's the America situation. Here so, in Thailand... So, well, okay, before we jump to Thailand, so you're saying that the, the flower in U.S. cannot be over 0.3. No, cannot. So then how are they hitting levels of 10, 20% on the THC when you're getting it medically? Well, the, 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 the THC, this is a CBD plant we're looking at here. Okay, so that, that's what we need to understand. They're two different plants two completely. Two different plants. One's hemp. And one, one's hemp or hemp CBD. Okay. And the other is THC. Marijuana plant. Marijuana. Okay, yeah. so th this is important I, I, for people to understand that. It's very the hard CBD to The CBD and the marijuana plant, they're completely different. Yeah, I mean, if we just explain this to be very, very clear, because this is such an area of confusion. Yes. We, we have one plant. It's called cannabis sativa. Now, that one plant can either produce CBD or THC, or a mixture of the two. We have bred them to go to either extremes and the same plant make just THC and no CBD. Or we've made them make just CBD and no THC. Or we've made them make oh. a variety of ratio of the two. Now, if we're looking at CBD products, we've gone to the right. We just want the, the cannabis sativa, the same plant that could make ganja, but that just makes the CBD. Now, what makes what makes the government call it acceptable hemp and not MJ is being under 0.3% THC. Which is an arbitrary level. It's it? just an arbitrary level that they've set. But well, why, why did they set it? That? Is there any well, they, reason they, for that? Or? They think that it's not at that lower concentration, the, it, there is virtually no psychoactive um, it, you know, effects on a human being. 
literally nothing at all. It's not worth worrying about. I had about. heard that it actually kind of got put, there was a Canadian paper written 40 years ago that casually mentioned point three, and it was pulled in the legislation from that, but more, it was never a serious study. More than likely, I, I could almost put money on it that there was no scientific research done to show at what concentration level impairment begins. If you can, uh, I've not seen that. Right. I'd be interested. If not, maybe we should do some. But like most things, just some more bullshit was flouted. And I guess they probably thought that looks low, that it's acceptable. But uh, anyway, they were about right. You can't get high at 0.3. But it's still, an airline pilot couldn't take that. Mm. But looking back to the farmer in the field, so every week he's got to check that the, if, if the weather conditions change, where he's growing his CBD hemp, like you say, it gets really hot. That can make the genetics of the plant throw a wobbly and actually start producing THC as like an, an, an ancient like gene expression comes out. Even though that the plant shouldn't be doing it, it does. And it starts creeping up every day, the THC concentration. So the farmer has to check it all the time. That could be from humidity, more yeah, we're, we're, we're not really sun, sure. water, whatever. Various stressors, mm. yeah. Stress the plant out. And we're not 100% what they are. Um, we've got some ideas what kind of makes spikes happen. But the long and the short of it is, if he, it, he might have a plant that in, a, in an indoor environment with aircon, LED lighting, everything micro-controlled and not changing, I could get that plant to 20% CBD and keep it under 0.3, no problem, because there's no variation in environment. But that's Out, where it gets quite expensive to produce well it, it, in a controlled and environment. This is the, and this is, it does. But so outdoors, your farmer's at the risk of the environment changing. That's why every week he's measuring THC. And most of them have to cut the field when the CBD level reaches, say, 12%, 10%. It never reaches its maximum. They might cut it at six weeks. See, when the cannabis plant grows, CBD is produced first. The THC isn't produced in the plant until the end of the growing part. To the budding. Uh, well, the, as we or the flower. No, no it, the flower starts early on and matures through an eight, eight to ten week cycle. As that flower is going week one, week two, it's mainly just making CBD. As we said, THC comes from the molecule CBD. It's a precursor in the plant. There's an enzyme that acts on CBD to convert it into a range of other chemicals that goes to THC. That's where the THC comes from. That's why you don't get THC first in the plant, because it's actually synthesized from the CBD that's made first. But so at, towards the end of the plant's flowering cycle, can all go wrong, and the THC level goes up. Poor farmer has to lose the whole field of crop at $20,000 an acre because the THC went up too much. He wasn't even allowed to go above 0.3. Now, now, th this, now, this is in the U.S. And this is in the U.S., and it's a weird one because he's going to take those plants to, a, to an extraction lab and extract it where the THC would go, even if it was 0.3 and he hadn't destroyed the crop. I now put it through first-level extraction. The THC concentration in the crude oil will now be 2.5%, 3%. So if I'm a farmer, you wouldn't even take the risk of starting that? Well, you... you, you You've not got least, it's, year, it's, it's, an, it's an ugly issue to, to have to risk, you know, am I going to have to destroy my field? Watch the feds come in with fire burners and burn the lot. See, now here in Thailand, when they were setting the laws, they asked for advice on this here, the government. They said, how should we do it? So we all said to them, listen, don't do what America did. Set it at 1%. Switzerland did this. 
And the reasoning was quite simple. You give us a license to grow the CBD plants and we take them to a lab uh, facility and we, we extract the oil, which concentrates the THC. We then remediate and take the THC out with all our expensive equipment. We do that as a standard. So if you can demonstrate that you do that, you shouldn't have to destroy the crop in the field. It's just ridiculous. What, le uh, what your distrust... It's not about distrust. It's about if you can prove you've the platform to deal with that, then you should be allowed to. And is it quite uh, low risk to keep it under 1% or is there still a lot of risk associated with that? A lot of risk. So can they not if change legislation or you know these regulations to allow for up to 10 to 12 or whatever, yeah. knowing that you have these SOPs in place mm. for removal? Not, not that high because then you've got or field in, let's weed say in a field that you can get high off. Mm. Someone can come and steal the weed out of the field. You see, FDA would let me grow weed of 10% THC, but it's got to be within a CCTV system. Guard dogs, guards. You've got additional security that you don't have with CBD growing. Yeah, which is going to drive your cost up. Well, massively. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got two different, that's why you have two different models. So now the model the model in the in Thailand is you, you've, it's legal, you're allowed to do it 1%. Um, yeah, for hemp, you can yeah. have a limited company and you can grow CBD flour for a specific order. You can't just decide, hey, I'm going to grow and grow some CBD. And wait to see who buys. Yeah, that's not happening. Okay. And then what about on the <coughs> what about on the THC side in, in uh, Thailand? Because we've heard a lot of it becoming decriminalized. Uh, is this allowed now where Thailand's able to produce marijuana plants? Yeah, people don't really know. I don't even think a lot of lawyers know the legal situation here really clearly. You're allowed to produce, you can get a, a license to grow THC flour with a government agency, a hospital, or certain units of the armed forces that have been granted permission. There are some other people that have been granted permission for payment to this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's another story. So effectively, we can grow THC flower here either for research and development, breeding, or a specific order that we're fulfilling within Thailand or overseas. Um, in my case, I'm building an EU GMP facility to service THC orders overseas. Um as well as obviously the domestic market, which includes clinics and prescriptional-based drugs. So we will be supplying doctors' clinics with oil preparations in tincture bottles initially and traditional herbal doctors, the flower. So people don't know this yet, but you can smoke flower legally now in Thailand as a prescriptional patient. If you go to a Thai, traditional Thai herbal doctors don't even know this themselves, that they're allowed to now prescribe THC flower along with other herbal preparations, which can be smoked on the property or in your own home. That's the law. But they need a license, obviously. They need to have, yeah. done, they need to have done a basic two-day online course, which entitles them to dispense THC flour. And they then need to buy the flour from a registered, licensed producer. And here is in why, why nothing's got started here. Because we're not even at the stage yet where we've got a finished crop that's been FDA inspected and verified so we can then start selling clinics. So until that happens, only the GPO of being the government pharmaceutical organization have been given the rights to distribute a cannabis-based product, which they make, mm. which they actually cheated and bought in because they, did, they couldn't grow the plants properly. What, what is the size of the market in US dollar for this type of product in Thailand? In, in Thailand, I don't believe it's going to be 
It's can't. It's not going. It can't it's, be that astronomical. It, it's not going to be astronomical. I mean, you see market figures for the cannabis industry, thirty to fifty billion dollars by, in Thailand, thirty to 50 no, 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 globally and within globally. Asia. Okay. Um, I mean the Asian, the Asian market. I think if we if we disclude Thailand, the Asian market is enormous. Yeah, it's but much at that, bigger that than point, America. it's much more difficult. Like you're not in, importing uh, THC into China. No, we're exporting, and, 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 well, um, and but they're not allowed to import officially. No, but we we actually have got people with licenses to import CBD from different Asian countries into China. Yes. Okay. So potentially the Asian market is absolutely enormous. If China opens, very very valuable. Yeah. If China opens, it's game on. Do you think China will go medical? <coughs> they're already allowing research into it yeah and i actually know somebody now in beijing growing thc flour okay in legally. china legally yeah. legally oh yeah of course my goodness you wouldn't want to do it illegally uh no no they're growing it legally uh, with the government do you think thailand is more or less advanced than most of asia when it comes to marijuana it's the mo- it's the most advanced without a shadow of a doubt it's got their but it, it's going to lose traction if it doesn't get going quickly with investment soon because it, it it showed it shunned everyone away with experience international investment the international it needs no it's got enough investment within thailand there's enough thai billionaires here with cash to to set this up and finance it if they wanted to so then what's the issue why, why aren't they getting international investment it, it we've got the international investment potential it's just that the people coming in haven't seen a set up structure that they want to back because the thais have been not letting in the correct people with the correct skills so it's only certain people like me that have lived here for long enough that have access and contacts to all of the relevant skills abroad. I've been able to bring them in and put them together into a team. So therein lies a big problem. I mean, there are lots of investors here that have got big money put in already. They've got plants sitting in two feet of water in a field right now. Not a clue. No clue at all. So that that's the endemic problem we've got here. Yeah. Isn't there a, a huge risk of uncertainty with legislation in, in Thailand in the sense that rules can change tomorrow? So uh, if I'm an investor and I've put all my money into a farm or, or, or a, a marijuana THC Thai, Thai business company that's looking to export that the government could uh, close the door the next day? A lot of people worry about Thailand for that perspective. But I have to say I don't. I've lived here for 15 years now. And the first time I came here, I read, oh, there's a coup every six years. Everything will change. You'll lose your house. You ha- I had to buy my house under a traditional method of yeah. purchase. I don't own it. I'm, I'm, I'm at the will of the government. Have I had a problem? No. Have any of the other hundreds of thousands of francs with up to 20, 30, 50 million dollar villas had problems? No, they haven't. So, no, I don't think we're going to have any problems. They have their little glitches in Thailand, but they sort it. Yeah, internally on their own without anyone poking their nose in, and they just need to be allowed to get on with that cycle. It's, it's happened for years and years. I don't think it's going to change. And if it was I, Laos, Cambodia, I might be with you. I'm, I'd be, I'd be okay. You know, I'd be more worried. Well, the, the worry, <laughs> the worry would be, uh, you're opening up a, you'd be opening up a Thai company, Thai registered company, to set up this this operation and these processes. And everyone knows in Thailand, you cannot own a company. Uh, oh no, that's no wrong. Americans can. Americans can. An, over- an American can own the entire cannabis company. By the way, correct. S- technically, that is correct. Um, I'm only allowed to uh, be. A, be uh, no, 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 no. It's not. It's thirty-three percent. 
Okay. It's traditionally 51.49 for all other businesses except cannabis, which was set by the DVD at 33% foreign ownership maximum. But an American can own the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, because that's one thing people didn't understand that Americans are the only one that can, they can own 100% of their business in Thailand. There's a treaty yeah. um, allowing that, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to get complete ownership of a grow. I think you'd be denied. An extraction company, possibly. Um, but then you'd need all the licenses and all the relevant contacts to be able to push that through and get the factory licenses. And if you were the majority owner and therefore greedy... I don't think any ties would help you achieve your goal. So hence why we don't have any rich foreigners that have just come in on their own with their money and arrogantly just taken the pie. Yeah, and it seems a bit risky, especially in terms of like the land side, because then there's you are the owner of the company, but now you're still foreign. You can't own the land and this is your grow up and you set up the op <coughs> you set up the operation. And then unless you have these airtight contracts, the next day someone just takes it all back and kind of closes down shop, which I mean, is not unheard of in Thailand. No, I mean, you need to be careful. I'm not going to mention any family names no, no, to no. get involved. Yeah, with, but course. I mean, there are certain certain enter enterprises going on right now with um companies i would be scared to be involved with because yeah they just bully you out at the end of the day yeah that's where it gets a bit risky so um but I, I mean as long as you get all your ducks in line and you have the right partners in place and you trust the right people and you have the right contracts but they're uh, trying thailand yeah. they're really yeah, they, yeah. they are trying to to make this appealing to us and i i don't believe that i'm being overtly set up for failure um so, so to to kind of come back to um to measure the success of this business unless uh, countries such as like USA open up and allow you to export then import uh, THC um, and Europe as well. I mean, aren't you kind of, uh, again, the ship is sailing while you're building it. We asked, that's no, exactly what, and you're, and you're hoping that they open. Is it is no, like, no, the, is, is there a bit of a gamble? Let's there? be clear. Canada's open already. Okay. Europe. Canada's market is, we got like four people. Europe, Europe is open already. Okay, So Europe's okay. Oh, yeah. As long as you have your EU GMP, mm -hmm. you're well, fine in Europe. Yeah, if you've got the contacts oh, to sell, we're that's fine. A, and all of Europe or, no, well, we, e, or you've e, got a European good, Union? Even country. the UK now. Okay. I've even got an LOI for crude oil, THC, into the UK. Unheard of um, for processing. And we'll let people, letter of intent, meaning that they're, they're... A company in the UK with license... To be able to purchase, well, and as so you said, without an LOI, you can't even start production. So no, so okay. you, you've got to you've got to get over the chicken and egg, and hence the contacts is useful because I'm asking people to give me orders without having a finished facility, based on the back of my credibility and my yeah. past performance. So, yeah, yeah. it's a, it, it's slightly a big deal, but it's the only way to get going here. Um, it can't be done any other way. You have to build the facility, certify it. So you have to go into it with some blind faith. It's doable. Of course it's doable. There's hundreds of facilities certified out there. It just takes time, money, and know-how. Yeah, so there's a bit of risk attached, but I mean, uh, it can pay off quite well if, yeah. if it works out. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, I, and, and I, I understand that as well. I mean, people think, well, like I, I was kind of more playing devil's advocate and saying, well, the Thai can come in, they could take your land, they could take your business. But let's be honest, it's relatively new, this industry. And they're not going to, you know, you know, kill the baby before it even learns to crawl, right? They're going to oh, give it a chance. It doesn't make any sense why they would, you know, yeah, they, destroy it from the beginning. Because they're going to 
want more foreign investment, let's say five, 10 years down the road. And if you make any issues in the first couple of years, well, then you're going to discourage anyone from coming in. So uh, look, I've no doubt ties are very sensitive to people, foreigners stealing what potentially could have been some action that they could get, but they don't mind sharing. So I think in the long term, if we help them achieve a big business, they can't do us over for one main reason. We control the export side of it and the contacts to Farangland outside Thailand. Okay, Now, if they disrupt any of the production and anything going on here, we'll just move production to another country. Yeah. It's us with the contacts and the end of buyers. And you so still have you still have your machine, you still have your assets yes, that can be moved quite easily. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. It, you know, I don't think they're gonna have a problem there, no. What's it, the majority of the investment? Sorry if to interrupt on that. Is it going to be the machinery itself? About half half. So if you look at for example, a total spend of fifty million dollars on a cannabis company, probably twenty was sunk into the cost of building indoor growing facilities to make indoor triple A THC flour. 15, 20 was spent on extraction testing equipment and 10 was operating expenses. So then it's easy. Yeah, I mean, you can pick your stuff up and move. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite a big chunk on extraction. And what about on your side, Nicholas? Do, uh, I know you're just here on holidays, kind of come to chill out after... Uh, um, uh, working in the U.S., but do you have any intentions or plans of getting into this industry while you're here? Because it's almost like you're in the right place at the right time with the right expertise. It was, I mean, it wasn't an accident. I, uh, after I left the U.S., I wanted to travel a bit, but I chose countries that all had either already significant economies or burgeoning marijuana economies. I kind of wanted to combine a kind of, make it useful at least. Um, mm. And then, but there's, like James has said, there's not a lot of information even in Thailand, on what's happening on the regulations. So, um, since coming here, I've learned quite a lot of it. I mean, how it's how it's growing. It seems to be growing a lot. So, um, having seen it, uh, I'm definitely very. I mean, interested in. I think a lot of people are going to be very interested from the U.S. and Canada too. Are you kind of just keeping your your ear to the floor now? Um, for example. If extraction or, or formulation uh, testing facilities start to open up. In Thailand, that w would you be looking to take on like a consulting type of role, a business partner type of role? Are you kind of just watching carefully or are you, are, are you sitting back? I mean, I've been watching carefully. I would be interested in some capacity entering it. I, I think the last couple of years, I, I entered marijuana in Colorado when it was growing. And then I kind of saw it come to... Um, a level of adoption where we we're going to enter a new phase um, that people like him are in the creating where it's a globalization. Um, and I think the industry in America and Canada are going to change a lot. And the people working there are going to undergo a lot of changes in the coming years as the world kind of catches up. So I'm, I, I do this cause it's interesting and I want to do something very interesting. And this is the most interesting thing in, in cannabis, I think, right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is pioneers at the forefront of this industry, uh, especially in terms of um, U.S. and Canada understanding that it's not feasible to do the farming back uh, in, in on that land. Do you see this as a major barrier that if it does not become federally legalized, um, in the U.S. that it could be quite difficult for, let's say, um, a Thai company to be able to survive or 
do you believe that the, the European market could keep them alive regardless? Um, I think it's a big market and anyone would want to sell to them. But I think that if America does not federally decriminalize, there will be sh they're going to shoot themselves in the foot because other countries are going to step up. I mean, there's a domestic market that can make a lot of people very happy in the States. But there is beyond the domestic market as well. So, and if, if you can't ship in and you can't even ship across state lines, <coughs> you're not going to be a part of that party. Um, so they've done really well now. I, I have faith that they... They're going to open up. Too. Do, do you think it will turn more to like how the supplement uh, um, industry works in the sense? Let's talk about uh, any type of supplement. You could take uh, moringa powder, whatever. Um, a lot of these supplement supplement industry, the way that it works is all the products, they get the raw material come from China. It comes into the U.S. and it goes to um, uh, GMP, GMP facilities where they do the processing, which Honestly, all they're doing is taking the product and putting it into a capsule and closing it in a bottle. Now, the reason you do that is so you can write made in USA on the bottle. So that's what I foresee the American market, you know, capitalizing. They would be more involved on the, bo the bottling stages. Absolutely. They've got a lot of processes set up now with a lot of expensive equipment. And fairly soon they're going to be underused. So... Most of them are going out of business now anyway. And what's left at the end of the day, will uh, I'm lining them up right now to send material to, to perform uh, other, other added value services on my wholesale products. Because, yeah, I mean, they might well be able to make certain things like vape cartridges for me. And, and I send the oil. They just basically put the whole lot together. So, yeah, that sort of service is, is economic, where it's done with a machine versus time in America. Because, and it has to be done for legal reasons. I'm not allowed to make vape cartridges here in Thailand. Canada wants millions of THC vape cartridges, so I can send the THC oil to Canada, to a clean room, GMP clean room, make the carts, sell them to a wholesaler from there. But a lot of people don't understand that... It's almost a monopoly on the GMP processing side in the U.S. Because let's be honest, why can you not just capsule it in Thailand and put it in a bottle and say made in Thailand? I think it's because uh, the north, the the or well, the western side of the world has added this negative connotation attached attached to any product not made in Canada, not made in USA. But the reality is, the product is literally going to come from Asia. It's going to go to the U.S. and they're going to put it into a bottle. What is any different of that being put in a bottle in, let's say, or, or in, in any type of form in Asia and being sent over there? And in fact, you're probably going to save a couple. I, I know on my side, probably save 10% on uh, costs, which I'm just going to pass on to the end user anyways. So I, I don't know if it's more of a statement or a question. I, I guess the question more is, like, why can't we operate... Uh, with that school of thought. I'm actually going to be open-minded. I'll make the products here in the EU GMP facility in Thailand. And if I see any, any issues with uptake of that because of the distrust of Asia, then I will simply get it reboxed because I'm not breaking chain of custody for the fact that it's been out of an EU GMP facility. So when the final label made in US, bottled in US, EU GMPs on the box, it's all true. It's come from an EU GMP to another one in the States, just, as you know, 
politically we can now stick made in the US on the box. Well, if that's worth more. You can't put made in the US here if no, you if no, you bottle it here. No, if we bottle it here, but we won't bottle it. We'll send it in a bulk bulk bottle, which puts put loaded into a machine gotcha. that then bottles it yeah. and boxes it. Yeah. And for the simple f- issue of doing that, just to put the sti- made just in to US. put the sticker on it, basically yeah. um, made in US. So yeah, I do either if it if it looks like it's an issue for buyers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unless like, uh, come on, YouTube, make this podcast go viral because if people understood that they'd be like so i can pay less if i just says made in thailand but it's the same shit it's the same quality people would come up and be like fuck off gmp us put made in thailand and uh, i can save 10 percent of the end at the end cost we're we're gonna hope yeah and and look we were talking about pricing earlier yeah how we're gonna price things if we can convey to the for example the american public that our cbd products made in a facility here are just as good they'll be like half the price. Yeah. It, but if worst comes to worst, we're still going to win because we're going to send them and bottle them in America and then we'll still sell them at half the price. Yes. So either way, they're going to get the same product cheaper <coughs> because I've got 10 times cheaper labor. Whether it means I need to badge it from here or from Thailand at the end of the day. And anything in terms of control, consistency, quality control, it's much safer to do everything at a single facility. Of course. Why are we passing stuff all around just to, you know, uh, have this happy label on the back? Okay, uh, I think we've talked a lot. We covered a lot of stuff. Before we jump out, um, I I was going to throw it to Nicholas because I know as well before we were chatting that not only this podcast, you you wanted to come and share your expertise, but you could learn as well a little bit of what's yeah, going sure. on. Did you have any questions for James, uh, or did we kind of cover enough that that it? Uh, um, you, you, uh, sorry, any questions uh, that you were you wanted to ask him? Um, I think my question would be: um, You already spoke to the size of the Thai domestic market, and I'm interested in kind of where Thailand do you think is going to sit in the next ten years, just within Asia. And what the role it's going to come to serve in marijuana in this region, really? Well, if Thailand get their way, uh, some some initiatives that people might not realize Thailand are doing at the moment, they're creating a medical center of excellence in Thailand at the moment. And they want Thailand to become Asia's premier place to come for medical treatment, be it dental, medical, holistic treatment. So they're spending serious money creating these wellness centers around Thailand, centers of excellence where you can go and get a multitude of different things. The cannabis fits in with that model because they want to be the mega center for cannabis for Asia. And they've got such a large way ahead of all the other Asian countries. I don't think that anyone else will get traction now as quick. So if they don't screw us up, I do actually think they're going to become the center of cannabis for the planet in Thailand, really. It's not a joke. There's no reason why they can't. They've got the environment, the people. If they bring in the, co- the skills and the money, it's all doable. We will replace the, the states for sure. Well, yeah. the Head Start is, ma- I mean, the Head Start was the biggest thing in the US. Colorado has so many, I mean, brands that are all over America and Canada now because they had extra time to develop those brands. Too. Well, I've been going, yeah. yeah. And and because of Colorado. Yeah, co- I mean, Colorado and brands are all over the US yeah. now. So it did us a favor, really. It showed us how the markets work, how they play out, what people like, what they don't. The amount of information that we can glean from Colorado and other U.S. On a global scale. On a, and so we, we are bringing all that knowledge, and that's how we're going to hit the ground running on day one here. 
just it's it, yeah it's gonna be yeah, and also geo in terms of the geopolitical structure in southeast asia i mean thailand's your, your best choice i mean not to talk shit on places like vietnam cambodia huh? Laos. love vietnam yeah they're great places but they're just not as stable as thailand i mean places like indonesia i mean you get your head chopped off singapore death well, penalty well, things like this it's it's just thailand it, it makes it makes the most sense well they're not muslim and it's yeah. nothing against. Well, being, that's why I didn't say that. <laughs> it, 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 it's nothing against religion, but the Muslim religion for, forbids drugs. Forbids, yes. forbids drugs, and yeah. I, I cannot imagine any change in the religious status of the Quran or anything that would enable drugs to be. Otherwise, this sold. could work in Malaysia. So, uh, well, I've got very big contacts in Malaysia, yeah. really, really big, and um, they—they're actually, you know, the royal family, so they can do what they like, but even they're hesitant to. Yeah, yeah. To you know, just do something because, as they said, look, if we make stuff here in Thailand, they could they could get away with producing THC or CBD in a grow in Malaysia, no problem, no one will touch them. But you can't export it because, as a country, it's illegal. So, as long as it remains illegal for the country, it's never a commercial viable concept. It has to be allowed by the country now, by the criminal. They have to decriminalize. And actually allow it in their Which society. Is, I, I think that's more it's uh, on the religion side than the political and it side. It is totally. That's why it will never yeah. happen in Malaysia. Realistically, it's definitely not in in, in in Indonesia. I don't think on a huge scale. It'd be interesting in Indonesia because, especially, I mean, it's sad, but these countries flourish from palm oil. So pick your poison. And historically, yeah. they, they have long histories with marijuana too. Yeah, like the genetics that have been that have come from Laos, Cambodia, Thailand. Yeah. So oh, Cambodia, Lao are different. Lao would Cam be a bit difficult La La for transportation. Lao La La have been inviting us in to uh, giving us free electric, free water. Oh, okay. Uh, free, free licenses. No corporation tax for 14 so they're, years. they've been pretty liberal. Oh, they're major liberal. But the other issue there is the political instability that wouldn't make you want to go there. Mm. Because you really could have it, a, a general turn up with an AK-47 yeah. and... You're gone, and then Myanmar is just out of the question, and, and that's, just, that's <laughs> another question. Nice people, but you've got yeah, the same yeah, issues yeah. with the yeah. geopolitical instability. Yeah, you you never know what's going to happen. So no, I think yeah. Thailand's your best option. Yeah, that, yeah. and there are uh, parallel things happening here that feed into uh, the t the tourist industry. It's so. massive. I mean, you know, tourism in, in uh, now we've got COVID. It's very sad, but will return. Thailand's loved by most of the people in the world as yeah. a holiday destination. And we are setting up massive amounts of weed hotels, should we call them, resorts. So, yeah, wellness clinics. Yeah, name them what you like. Um, but weed, the, tourism. The, 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 the weed tourism will be, is going to be it's huge. I think that wraps it up. We'll do a couple quick little plugs. Uh, I guess first, James, that's your, your camera. So anything you want to plug. Um, in terms of your, your Instagram handle, I only saw you had one picture, so probably you don't care of people going there. No, um, no. Let them know where to find you, and uh, yeah, take it away. You can talk to the camera. So, yeah, you can contact me um, at my Instagram page, James um, Donald. What was my Instagram? Just yeah. remind me. We'll put it here. We'll, James we'll, Donald. We'll put it out in a second. Yeah. Um, that's the easiest way. I, I have to stay low with my um, contactability yeah. because of the number of people I get pestered by. Um, but connect to me on, on, on LinkedIn if you want to um, have a chat with me, and I'll get back to you. I do reply to most people that connect to me. Yeah, and don't send me any mes messages for James. I'll just tell you to take a hike. So. Yeah.
<laughs> okay. And Nicholas, any information if people are in this industry looking for you or, or, um, we can put you, my email up. I don't have anything uh, to plug, but I would we, plug Thailand. Come to Phuket. Come, come to, to Phuket. Phuket. Well, we can throw your Instagram. You want your Instagram handle or no? Yeah, we could do that. We okay. Do we'll that. throw the Instagram handle. You throw the email out there. Who knows? Some Russian hackers somehow read this message. <laughs> Next thing you got 5 million. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, that's everything on yeah. our side. Uh, has a quite interesting podcast. Uh, I think I need a beer after that one though. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to watch the full video on YouTube, come visit our channel, Fruiting Body Podcast. We can also be found on Instagram at Fruiting Body Podcast. Please be sure to share and follow this podcast with friends and family. Thank you very much.